Chapter Nine of *The Woman in White* by Wilkie Collins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tony Addison. The story continued by Marion Halcombe, in extracts from her diary. Limeridge House, November eighth. Note: The passages omitted here and elsewhere in Miss Halcombe's diary are only those which bear no reference to Miss Ferry or to any of the persons with whom she is associated in these pages. This morning Mr. Gilmore left us. His interview with Laura had evidently grieved and surprised him more than he liked to confess. I felt afraid, from his look and manner when we parted, that she might have inadvertently betrayed to him the real secret of her depression and my anxiety. This doubt grew on me so after he had gone that I declined riding out with Sir Percival and went up to Laura's room instead. I have been sadly distrustful of myself in this difficult and lamentable manner ever since I found out my own ignorance of the strength of Laura's unhappy attachment. I ought to have known that the delicacy and forbearance and sense of honour which drew me to poor Hartwright had made me so sincerely admire and respect him were just the qualities to appeal most irresistibly to Laura's natural sensitiveness and natural generosity of nature. And yet, until she opened her heart to me of her own accord, I had no suspicion that this new feeling had taken root so deeply. I once thought time and care might remove it. I now fear that it will remain with her and alter her for life. The discovery that I have committed such an error in judgment as this makes me hesitate about everything else. I hesitate about Sir Percival in the face of the plainest proofs. I hesitate even in speaking to Laura. On this very morning I doubted with my hand on the door whether I should ask her the questions I had come to put or not. When I went into her room, I found her walking up and down in great impatience. She looked flushed and excited, and she came forward at once, and spoke to me before I could open my lips. "'I wanted you,' she said. "'Come, and sit down on the sofa with me. Marion, I can bear this no longer. I must and will end it.' There was too much colour in her cheeks, too much energy in her manner, too much firmness in her voice the little book of Hartwright's drawings, the fatal book that she will dream over whenever she is alone, was in one of her hands. I began by gently and firmly taking it from her, and putting it out of sight on a side-table. "'Tell me quietly, my darling, what you wish to do,' I said. "'Has Mr. Gilmore been advising you?' She shook her head. "'No, not in what I am thinking of now.' He was very kind and good to me, Marion, and I am ashamed to say I distressed him by crying. I am miserably helpless. I can't control myself. For my own sake and for all our sakes, I must have courage enough to end it. Do you mean courage enough to claim your release? I asked. No, she said simply. Courage, dear, to tell the truth. She put her arms round my neck and rested her head quietly on my bosom. On the opposite wall hung the miniature portrait of her father. I bent over her and saw that she was looking at it while her head lay on my breast. 
I can never claim my release from my engagement, she went on. Whatever way it ends, it must end wretchedly for me. All I can do, Marian, is not to add the remembrance that I have broken my promise and forgotten my father's dying words to make that wretchedness worse. What is it you propose, then? I asked. To tell Sir Percival Glyde the truth with my own lips, she answered, and to let him release me if he will, not because I ask him, but because he knows all. What do you mean, Laura, by all? Sir Percival will know enough. He has told me so himself, if he knows that the engagement is opposed to your own wishes. Can I tell him that, when the engagement was made for me by my father, with my own consent? I should have kept my promise, not happily, I am afraid, but still contentedly. She stopped, turned her face to me, and laid her cheek close against mine. I should have kept my engagement, Marian, if another love had not grown up in my heart, which was not there when I first promised to be Sir Percival's wife. Laura, you will never lower yourself by making a confession to him. I shall lower myself indeed if I gain my release by hiding from him what he has a right to know. He has not the shadow of a right to know it. Wrong, Marian, wrong. I ought to deceive no one, least of all the man to whom my father gave me, and to whom I gave myself. She put her lips to mine and kissed me. My own love, she said softly, you are much too fond of me, and so much too proud of me, that you forget in my case what you would remember in your own. Better that Sir Percival should doubt my motives and misjudge my conduct if he will, than that I should be first false to him in thought, and then mean enough to serve my own interests by hiding the falsehood. I held her away from me in astonishment. For the first time in our lives we had changed places. The resolution was all on her side, the hesitation all on mine. I looked into the pale, quiet, resigned young face. I saw the pure, innocent heart in the loving eyes that looked back at me, and the poor, worldly cautions and objections that rose to my lips dwindled and died away in their own emptiness. I hung my head in silence. In her place, the despicably small pride which makes so many women deceitful would have been my pride and would have made me deceitful, too. "'Don't be angry with me, Marian,' she said, mistaking my silence. I only answered by drawing her close to me again. I was afraid of crying if I spoke. My tears do not flow so easily as they ought. They come almost like men's tears, with sobs that seem to tear me in pieces, and that frighten everyone about me. "'I have thought of this love for many days.' she went on, twining and twisting my hair, with that childish restlessness in her fingers, which poor Mrs. Vesey still tries so patiently and so vainly to cure her of. I have thought of it very seriously, and I can be sure of my courage when my own conscience tells me I am right. Let me speak to him to-morrow in your presence, Marian. I will say nothing that is wrong, Nothing that you or I need be ashamed of, but, oh, it will ease my heart so to end this miserable concealment. Only let me know and feel that I have no deception to answer for on my side, 
and then, when he has heard what I have to say, let him act towards me as he will. She sighed, and put her head back in its old position on my bosom. Sad misgivings about what the end would be weighed upon my mind, but still distrusting myself, I told her that I would do as she wished. She thanked me, and we passed gradually into talking of other things. At dinner she joined us again, and was more easy and more herself with Sir Percival than I have seen her yet. In the evening she went to the piano, choosing new music of the dexterous, tuneless, florid kind. The lovely old melodies of Mozart, which poor Hartwright was so fond of, she has never played since he left. The book is no longer in the music-stand. She took the volume away herself, so that nobody might find it out, and ask her to play from it. I had no opportunity of discovering whether her purpose of the morning had changed or not, until she wished Sir Percival good-night, and then her own words informed me that it was unaltered. She said, very quietly, that she wished to speak to him after breakfast, and that he would find her in her sitting-room with me. He changed colour at those words, and I felt his hand trembling a little when it came to my turn to take it. The event of the next morning would decide his future life, and he evidently knew it. I went in, as usual, through the door between our two bedrooms, to bid Laura good-night before she went to sleep. In stooping over her to kiss her, I saw the little book of Hartwright's drawings half-hidden under her pillow, just in the place where she used to hide her favourite toys when she was a child. I could not find it in my heart to say anything, but I pointed to the book and shook my head. She reached both hands up to my cheeks, and drew my face down to hers till our lips met. Leave it there to-night, she whispered. Tomorrow may be cruel, and may make me say good-bye to it for ever. Ninth. The first event of the morning was not of a kind to raise my spirits. A letter arrived for me from poor Walter Hartwright. It is the answer to mine, describing the manner in which Sir Percival cleared himself of the suspicions raised by Anne Catherick's letter. He writes, shortly and bitterly, about Sir Percival's explanations, only saying that he has no right to offer an opinion on the conduct of those who are above him. This is sad, but his occasional references to himself grieve me still more. He says that the effort to return to his old habits and pursuits grows harder instead of easier to him every day, and he implores me, if I have any interest, to exert it to get him employment that will necessitate his absence from England, and take him among new scenes and new people. I have been made all the readier to comply with this request by a passage at the end of his letter, which has almost alarmed me. After mentioning that he has neither seen nor heard anything of Anne Catherick, he suddenly breaks off and hints in the most abrupt, mysterious manner that he has been perpetually watched and followed by strange men ever since he returned to London. He acknowledges that he cannot prove this extraordinary suspicion, 
by fixing on any particular persons, but he declares that the suspicion itself is present to him night and day. This has frightened me, because it looks as if his one fixed idea about Laura was becoming too much for his mind. I will write immediately to some of my mother's influential old friends in London, and press his claims on their notice. Change of scene and change of occupation may really be the salvation of him at this crisis in his life. Greatly to my relief, Sir Percival sent an apology for not joining us at breakfast. He had taken an early cup of coffee in his own room, and he was still engaged there in writing letters. At eleven o'clock, if that hour was convenient, he would do himself the honour of waiting on Miss Fairley and Miss Halcombe. My eyes were on Laura's face while the message was being delivered. I had found her unaccountably quiet and composed on going into her room in the morning, and so she remained all through breakfast, even when we were sitting together on the sofa in her room, waiting for Sir Percival, she still preserved her self-control. "'Don't be afraid of me, Marian,' was all she said. "'I may forget myself with an old friend like Mr. Gilmore, or with a dear sister like you, but I will not forget myself with Sir Percival Glyde.' I looked at her, and listened to her in silent surprise. Through all the years of our close intimacy— this passive force in her character had been hidden from me, hidden even from herself till love found it, and suffering called it forth. As the clock on the mantelpiece struck eleven, Sir Percival knocked at the door and came in. There was suppressed anxiety and agitation in every line of his face. The dry, sharp cough, which teases him at most times, seemed to be troubling him more incessantly than ever. He sat down opposite to us at the table, and Laura remained by me. I looked attentively at them both, and he was the palest of the two. He said a few unimportant words, with a visible effort to preserve his customary ease of manner, but his voice was not to be steadied and the restless uneasiness in his eyes was not to be concealed. He must have felt this himself, for he stopped in the middle of a sentence, and gave up even the attempt to hide his embarrassment any longer. There was just one moment of dead silence before Laura addressed him. "'I wish to speak to you, Sir Percival,' she said, "'on a subject that is very important to us both, my sister is here because her presence helps me and gives me confidence. She has not suggested one word of what I am going to say. I speak from my own thoughts, not from hers. I am sure you will be kind enough to understand that before I go any farther. Sir Percival bowed. She had proceeded thus far with perfect outward tranquillity and perfect propriety of manner. She looked at him, and he looked at her, they seemed, at the outset at least, resolved to understand one another plainly. "'I have heard from Marian,' she went on, "'that I have only to claim my release from our engagement, to obtain that release from you. It was forbearing and generous on your part, Sir Percival, 
to send me such a message. It is only doing you justice to say that I am grateful for the offer, and I hope and believe that it is only doing myself justice to tell you that I decline to accept it. His attentive face relaxed a little, but I saw one of his feet softly, quietly, incessantly, beating on the carpet under the table, and I felt that he was secretly as anxious as ever. "'I have not forgotten,' she said, "'that you asked my father's permission before you honoured me with the proposal of marriage. Perhaps you have not forgotten either what I said when I consented to our engagement. I ventured to tell you that my father's influence and advice had mainly decided me to give you my promise. I was guided by my father, because I had always found him the truest of all advisers, the best and fondest of all protectors and friends. I have lost him now. I have only his memory to love. But my faith in that dear dead friend has never been shaken. I believe at this moment, as truly as I ever believed, that he knew what was best, and that his hopes and wishes ought to be my hopes and wishes too. Her voice trembled for the first time. Her restless fingers stole their way into my lap, and held fast by one of my hands. There was another moment of silence, and then Sir Percival spoke. "'May I ask,' he said, "'if I have ever proved myself unworthy of the trust which it has been hitherto my greatest honour and greatest happiness to possess. I have found nothing in your conduct to blame, she answered. You have always treated me with the same delicacy and the same forbearance. You have deserved my trust, and what is of far more importance in my estimation, you have deserved my father's trust, out of which mine grew. You have given me no excuse, even if I had wanted to find one, for asking to be released from my pledge. What I have said so far has been spoken with the wish to acknowledge my whole obligation to you. My regard for that obligation, my regard for my father's memory, and my regard for my own promise, all forbid me to set the example on my side of withdrawing from our present position. The breaking of our engagement must be entirely your wish and your act, Sir Percival, not mine. The uneasy beating of his foot suddenly stopped, and he leaned forward eagerly across the table. My act, he said. What reason can there be on my side for withdrawing? I heard her breath quickening. I felt her hand growing cold. In spite of what she had said to me when we were alone, I began to be afraid of her. I was wrong. A reason that it is very hard to tell you, she answered. There is a change in me, Sir Percival, a change which is serious enough to justify you to yourself and to me in breaking off our engagement. His face turned so pale again that even his lips lost their colour. He raised the arm which lay on the table, turned a little away in his chair, and supported his head on his hand, so that his profile only was presented to us. "'What change?' he asked. The tone in which he put the question jarred on me. There was something painfully suppressed in it. 
She sighed heavily, and leaned towards me a little, so as to rest her shoulder against mine. I felt her trembling, and tried to spare her by speaking myself. She stopped me by a warning pressure of her hand, and then addressed Sir Percival once more, but this time without looking at him. I have heard, she said, and I believe it, that the fondest and truest of all affections is the affection which a woman ought to bear to her husband. When our engagement began, that affection was mine to give, if I could, and yours to win, if you could. Will you pardon me and spare me, Sir Percival, if I acknowledge that it is not so any longer? A few tears gathered in her eyes, and dropped over her cheek slowly as she paused and waited for his answer. He did not utter a word. At the beginning of her reply, he had moved the hand on which his head rested, so that it hid his face. I saw nothing but the upper part of his figure at the table. Not a muscle of him moved. The fingers of the hand which supported his head were dented deep in his hair. They might have expressed hidden anger or hidden grief. It was hard to say which. There was no significant trembling in them. There was nothing, absolutely nothing, to tell the secret of his thoughts at that moment, the moment which was the crisis of his life, and the crisis of hers. I was determined to make him declare himself for Laura's sake. Sir Percival, I interposed sharply, have you nothing to say? For my sister has said so much. More, in my opinion, I added, my unlucky temper getting the better of me, than any man alive in your position has a right to hear from her. That last rash sentence opened a way for him by which to escape me if he chose, and he instantly took advantage of it. "'Pardon me, Miss Harkin,' he said, still keeping his hand over his face. "'Pardon me if I remind you that I have claimed no such right.' The few plain words which would have brought him back to the point from which he had wandered were just on my lips, when Laura checked me by speaking again. "'I hope I have not made my painful acknowledgment in vain,' she continued. "'I hope it has secured me your entire confidence in what I have still to say?' "'Pray be assured of it.' He made that brief reply warmly, dropping his hand on the table while he spoke, and turning towards us again. Whatever outward change had passed over him was gone now. His face was eager and expectant. It expressed nothing but the most intense anxiety to hear her next words. "'I wish you to understand that I have not spoken from any selfish motive,' she said. "'If you leave me, Sir Percival, after what you have just heard, you do not leave me to marry another man. You only allow me to remain a single woman for the rest of my life. My fault towards you has begun and ended in my own thoughts. It can never go any farther. No word has passed.' She hesitated, in doubt about the expression she should use next hesitated in a momentary confusion which it was very sad and very painful to see. No word has passed, she patiently and resolutely resumed, between myself and the person to whom I am now referring for the first and last time in your presence of my feelings towards him 
or of his feelings towards me no word ever can pass neither he nor i are likely in this world to meet again i earnestly beg you to spare me from saying any more and to believe me on my word in what i have just told you it is the truth sir percival the truth which i think my promised husband has a claim to hear at any sacrifice of my own feeling i trust to his generosity to pardon me and to his honour to keep my secret both those trusts are sacred to me he said and both shall be sacredly kept after answering in those terms he paused and looked at her as if he was waiting to hear more i have said all i wish to say she added quietly i have said more than enough to justify you in withdrawing from your engagement you have said more than enough he answered to make it the dearest object of my life to keep the engagement with those words he rose from his chair and advanced a few steps towards the place where she was sitting she started violently and a faint cry of surprise escaped her every word she had spoken had innocently betrayed her purity and truth to a man who thoroughly understood the priceless value of a pure and true woman her own noble conduct had been the hidden enemy throughout of all the hope she had trusted to it i had dreaded this from the first i would have prevented it if she had allowed me the smallest chance of doing so i even waited and watched now when the harm was done for a word from sir percival that would give me the opportunity of putting him in the wrong you have left it to me miss Bailey, to resign you he continued i am not heartless enough to resign a woman who has just shown herself to be the noblest of her sex he spoke with such warmth and feeling with such passionate enthusiasm and yet with such perfect delicacy that she raised her head flushed up a little and looked at him with sudden animation and spirit no she said firmly the most wretched of her sex if she must give herself in marriage when she cannot give her love may she not give it in the future he asked if the one object of her husband's life is to deserve it never she answered if you still persist in maintaining our engagement i may be your true and faithful wife sir percival your loving wife if i know my own heart never she looked so irresistibly beautiful as she said those brave words that no man alive could have steeled his heart against her i tried hard to feel that sir percival was to blame and to say so but my womanhood would pity him in spite of myself i gratefully accept your faith and truth he said the least that you can offer is more to me than the utmost that i could hope for from any other woman in the world her left hand still held mine but her right hand hung listlessly at her side he raised it gently to his lips touched it with them rather than kissed it bowed to me and then with perfect delicacy and discretion silently quitted the room she neither moved nor said a word when he was gone she sat by me cold and still with her eyes fixed on the ground i saw it was hopeless and useless to speak 
and I only put my arm round her and held her to me in silence. We remained together so for what seemed a long and weary time, so long and so weary, that I grew uneasy and spoke to her softly in the hope of producing a change. The sound of my voice seemed to startle her into consciousness. She suddenly drew herself away from me and rose to her feet. I must submit Marian as well as I can, she said. My new life has its hard duties, and one of them begins to-day. As she spoke, she went to a side-table near the window, on which her sketching materials were placed, gathered them together carefully, and put them in a drawer of her cabinet. She locked the drawer, and brought the key to me. I must part from everything that reminds me of him, she said. Keep the key wherever you please. I shall never want it again. Before I could say a word, she had turned away to her bookcase, and had taken from it the album that contained Walter Hartwright's drawings. She hesitated for a moment, holding the little volume fondly in her hands, then lifted it to her lips and kissed it. Oh, Laura, Laura, I said, not angrily, not reprovingly, with nothing but sorrow in my voice and nothing but sorrow in my heart. It is the last time, Marian, she pleaded. I am bidding it good-bye for ever. She laid the book on the table, and drew out the comb that fastened her hair. It fell in its matchless beauty over her back and shoulders, and dropped round her far below her waist. She separated one long, thin lock from the rest, cut it off, and pinned it carefully in the form of a circle on the first blank page of the album. The moment it was fastened, she closed the volume hurriedly and placed it in my hands. "'You write to him, and he writes to you,' she said. "'While I am alive, if he asks after me, always tell him I am well, and never say I am unhappy. Don't distress him, Marian, for my sake don't distress him. If I die first, Promise you will give him this little book of his drawings with my hair in it. There can be no harm when I am gone in telling him that I put it there with my own hands and say, oh, Marian, say for me then what I can never say for myself. Say I loved him. She flung her arms round my neck and whispered the last words in my ear with a passionate delight in uttering them which it almost broke my heart to hear all the long restraint she had imposed on herself gave way in that first last outburst of tenderness she broke from me with hysterical vehemence and threw herself on the sofa in a paroxysm of sobs and tears that shook her from head to foot i tried vainly to soothe her and reason with her she was past being soothed and past being reasoned with it was the sad sudden end for us two of this memorable day when the fit had worn itself out, she was too exhausted to speak. She slumbered towards the afternoon, and I put away the book of drawings, so that she might not see it when she woke. My face was calm, whatever my heart might be, when she opened her eyes again and looked at me. We said no more to each other about the distressing interview of the morning. Sir Percival's name was not mentioned. Walter Hartwright was not alluded to again by either of us for the remainder of the day. 
tenth. Finding that she was composed and like herself this morning, I returned to the painful subject of yesterday for the sole purpose of imploring her to let me speak to Sir Percival and Mr. Fairley more plainly and strongly than she could speak to either of them herself about this lamentable marriage. She interposed, gently but firmly, in the middle of my remonstrances. I left yesterday to decide, she said, and yesterday has decided. It is too late to go back. Sir Percival spoke to me this afternoon about what had passed in Laura's room. He assured me that the unparalleled trust she had placed in him had awakened such an answering conviction of her innocence and integrity in his mind that he was guiltless of having felt even a moment's unworthy jealousy, either at the time when he was in her presence or afterwards when he had withdrawn from it. Deeply has he lamented the unfortunate attachment which had hindered the progress he might otherwise have made in her esteem and regard. He firmly believed that it had remained unacknowledged in the past, and that it would remain under all changes of circumstance which it was possible to contemplate unacknowledged in the future. This was his absolute conviction and the strongest proof he could give of it was the assurance which he now offered that he felt no curiosity to know whether the attachment was of recent date or not, or who had been the object of it. His implicit confidence in Miss Fairley made him satisfied with what she had thought fit to say to him, and he was honestly innocent of the slightest feeling of anxiety to hear more. He waited after saying those words, and looked at me. I was so conscious of my unreasonable prejudice against him, so conscious of an unworthy suspicion that he might be speculating on my impulsively answering the very questions which he had just described himself as resolved not to ask, that I evaded all reference to this part of the subject with something like a feeling of confusion on my own part. At the same time, I was resolved not to lose even the smallest opportunity of trying to plead Laura's cause, and I told him boldly that I regretted his generosity had not carried him one step farther, and induced him to withdraw from the engagement altogether. Here, again, he disarmed me by not attempting to defend himself. He would merely beg me to remember the difference there was between his allowing Miss Fairley to give him up, which was a matter of submission only, and his forcing himself to give up Miss Fairley, which was, in other words, asking him to be the suicide of his own hopes. Her conduct of the day before had so strengthened the unchangeable love and admiration of two long years, that all active contention against those feelings on his part was henceforth entirely out of his power. I must think him weak, selfish, unfeeling, towards the very woman whom he idolised, and he must bow to my opinion as resignedly as he could, only putting it to me at the same time, whether her future as a single woman, pining under an unhappily placed attachment which she could never acknowledge, could be said to promise her 
a much brighter prospect than her future as the wife of a man who worshipped the very ground she walked on. In the last case there was hope from time, however slight it might be. In the first case, on her own showing, there was no hope at all. I answered him, more because my tongue is a woman's and must answer, than because I had anything convincing to say. It was only too plain that the course Laura had adopted the day before had offered him the advantage if he chose to take it, and that he had chosen to take it. I felt this at the time, and I feel it just as strongly now, while I write these lines in my own room. The one hope left is that his motives really spring, as he says they do, from the irresistible strength of his attachment to Laura. Before I close my diary for tonight, I must record that I wrote to-day, in poor Hartwright's interest, to two of my mother's old friends in London, both men of influence and position. If they can do anything for him, I am quite sure they will. Except Laura. I never was more anxious about any one than I am now about Walter. All that has happened since he left us has only increased my strong regard and sympathy for him. I hope I am doing right in trying to help him to employment abroad. I hope most earnestly and anxiously that it will end well. 11. Sir Percival had an interview with Mr. Fairley, and I was sent for to join them. I found Mr. Fairley greatly relieved at the prospect of the family worry, as he was pleased to describe his niece's marriage, being settled at last. So far I did not feel called on to say anything to him about my own opinion, but when he proceeded, in his most aggravatingly languid manner, to suggest that the time for the marriage had better be settled next, in accordance with Sir Percival's wishes, I enjoyed the satisfaction of assailing Mr. Fairley's nerves with as strong a protest against hurrying Laura's decision as I could put into words. Sir Percival immediately assured me that he felt the force of my objection, and begged me to believe that the proposal had not been made in consequence of any interference on his part. Mr. Fairley leaned back in his chair, closed his eyes, said we both of us did honour to human nature, and then repeated his suggestion as coolly as if neither Sir Percival nor I had said a word in opposition to it. It ended in my flatly declining to mention the subject to Laura, unless she first approached it of her own accord. I left the room at once, after making that declaration. Sir Percival looked seriously embarrassed and distressed. Mr. Fairley stretched out his lazy legs on his velvet footstool, and said, Dear Marion, how I envy you, your robust nervous system. Don't bang the door. On going to Laura's room, I found that she had asked for me, and that Mrs. Basie had informed her that I was with Mr. Fairley. She inquired at once what I had been wanted for, and I told her all that had passed, 
without attempting to conceal the vexation and annoyance that I really felt. Her answer surprised and distressed me inexpressibly. It was the very last reply that I should have expected her to make. "'My uncle is right,' she said. "'I have caused trouble and anxiety enough to you and to all about me. Let me cause no more, Marion. Let Sir Percival decide.' I remonstrated warmly, but nothing that I could say moved her. "'I am held to my engagement,' she replied. "'I have broken with my old life. "'The evil day will not come the less surely because I put it off. "'No, Marion, once again my uncle is right. "'I have caused trouble enough and anxiety enough, "'and I will cause no more.' "'She used to be pliability itself, "'but she was now inflexibly passive in her resignation, "'I might almost say in her despair.' Dearly as I love her, I should have been less pained if she had been violently agitated. It was so shockingly unlike her natural character to see her as cold and insensible as I saw her now. 12. Sir Percival put some questions to me at breakfast about Laura, which left me no choice but to tell him what she had said. While we were talking, she herself came down and joined us. She was just as unnaturally composed in Sir Percival's presence as she had been in mine. When breakfast was over, he had an opportunity of saying a few words to her privately, in a recess of one of the windows. They were not more than two or three minutes together, and on their separating she left the room with Mrs. Vasey, while Sir Percival came to me. He said he had entreated her to favour him, by maintaining her privilege of fixing the time for the marriage at her own will and pleasure. In reply, she had merely expressed her acknowledgments, and had desired him to mention what his wishes were to Miss Halcombe. I have no patience to write more. In this instance, as in every other, Sir Percival has carried his point with the utmost possible credit to himself, in spite of everything that I can say or do. His wishes are now what they were, of course, when he first came here, and Laura, having resigned herself to the one inevitable sacrifice of the marriage, remains as coldly hopeless and enduring as ever. In parting with the little occupations and relics that reminded her of Hartwright, she seems to have parted with all her tenderness and all her impressibility. It is only three o'clock in the afternoon while I write these lines, and Sir Percival has left us already in the happy hurry of a bridegroom, to prepare for the bride's reception in his house in Hampshire. Unless some extraordinary event happens to prevent it, they will be married exactly at the time when he wished to be married, before the end of the year. My very fingers burn as I write it. Thirteenth. A sleepless night, through uneasiness about Laura. Towards the morning, I came to a resolution to try what change of scene would do to rouse her. She cannot surely remain in her present torpor of insensibility if I take her away from Limeridge and surround her with the pleasant faces of old friends. After some consideration, I decided on writing to the Arnolds in Yorkshire. They are simple, kind-hearted, hospitable people, and she has known them from her childhood. When I had put the letter in the post-bag, I told her what I had done. It would have been a relief to me 
if she had shown the spirit to resist an object, but no, she only said, I will go anywhere with you, Marion. I dare say you are right. I dare say the change will do me good. Fourteen. I wrote to Mr. Gilmore, informing him that there was really a prospect of this miserable marriage taking place, and also mentioning my idea of trying what change of scene would do for Laura. I had no heart to go into particulars, time enough for them when we get nearer to the end of the year. Fifteenth. Three letters for me. The first from the Arnolds, full of delight at the prospect of seeing Laura and me. The second from one of the gentlemen to whom I wrote on Walter Hartwright's behalf, informing me that he has been fortunate enough to find an opportunity of complying with my request. The third from Walter himself, thanking me, poor fellow, in the warmest terms, for giving him an opportunity of leaving his home, his country, and his friends. A private expedition to make excavations among the ruined cities of Central America is, it seems, about to sail from Liverpool. The draughtsman, who had been already appointed to accompany it, has lost heart, and withdrawn at the eleventh hour, and Walter is to fill his place. He is to be engaged for six months certain, from the time of the landing in Honduras, and for a year afterwards, if the excavations are successful, and if the funds hold out. His letter ends with a promise to write me a farewell line when they are all on board ship, and when the pilot leaves them. I can only hope and pray earnestly that he and I are both acting in this matter for the best. It seems such a serious step for him to take, that the mere contemplation of it startles me. And yet, in his unhappy position, how can I expect him or wish him to remain at home? Sixteenth. The carriage is at the door. Laura and I set out on our visit to the Arnolds today. Polesdean Lodge, Yorkshire, 23rd. A week in these new scenes, and among these kind-hearted people, has done us some good, though not so much as I had hoped. I have resolved to prolong our stay for another week at least. It is useless to go back to Limeridge till there is an absolute necessity for our return. Twenty-fourth. Sad news by this morning's post. The expedition to Central America sailed on the twenty-first. We have parted with a true man. We have lost a faithful friend. Walter Hartwright has left England. Twenty-fifth. Sad news yesterday. Ominous news today. Sir Percival Glyde has written to Mr. Fairley, and Mr. Fairley has written to Laura and me to recall us to Limeridge immediately. What can this mean? Has the day for the marriage been fixed in our absence? End of chapter 9Chapter Ten of The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tony Addison. Two. Limeridge House, November twenty-seventh. My forebodings are realized. 
The marriage is fixed for the 22nd of December. The day after we left for Polesdean Lodge, Sir Percival wrote, it seems, to Mr. Fairley, to say that the necessary repairs and alterations in his house in Hampshire would occupy a much longer time in completion than he had originally anticipated. The proper estimates were to be submitted to him as soon as possible, and it would greatly facilitate his entering into definite arrangements with the workpeople, if he could be informed of the exact period at which the wedding ceremony might be expected to take place. He could then make all his calculations in reference to time, besides writing the necessary apologies to friends who had been engaged to visit him that winter, and who could not, of course, be received when the house was in the hands of the workmen. To this letter Mr. Fairley had replied by requesting Sir Percival himself to suggest a day for the marriage, a subject to Miss Fairley's approval, which her guardian willingly undertook to do his best to obtain. Sir Percival wrote back by the next post, and proposed, in accordance with his own views and wishes from the first, the latter part of December, perhaps the twenty-second, or twenty-fourth, or any other day that the lady and her guardian might prefer. The lady not being at hand to speak for herself, her guardian had decided in her absence on the earliest day mentioned, the twenty-second of December, and had written to recall us to Limeridge in consequence. After explaining these particulars to me at a private interview yesterday, Mr. Fairley suggested in his most amiable manner that I should open the necessary negotiations to-day. Feeling that resistance was useless, unless I could first obtain Laura's authority to make it, I consented to speak to her, but declared at the same time that I would on no consideration undertake to gain her consent to Sir Percival's wishes. Mr. Fairley complimented me on my excellent conscience, much as he would have complimented me if he had been out walking on my excellent constitution, and seemed perfectly satisfied so far with having simply shifted one more family responsibility from his own shoulders to mine. This morning I spoke to Laura as I had promised. The composure, I may almost say the insensibility, which she has so strangely and so resolutely maintained ever since Sir Percival left us, was not proof against the shock of the news I had to tell her. She turned pale, and trembled violently. "'Not so soon,' she pleaded. "'Oh, Marian, not so soon!' The slightest hint she could give was enough for me. I rose to leave the room, and fight a battle for her at once with Mr. Fairley. Just as my hand was on the door, she caught fast hold of my dress and stopped me. "'Let me go,' I said. "'My tongue burns to tell your uncle that he and Sir Percival are not to have it all their own way.' She sighed bitterly, and still held my dress. No, 
she said faintly. Too late, Marion, too late. Not a minute too late, I retorted. The question of time is our question, and trust me, Laura, to take a woman's full advantage of it. I unclasped her hand from my gown while I spoke, but she slipped both her arms round my waist at the same moment, and held me more effectually than ever. It will only involve us in more trouble and more confusion, she said. It will set you and my uncle at variance, and bring Sir Percival here again, with fresh causes of complaint. So much the better, I cried out passionately. Who cares for his causes of complaint? Are you to break your heart, to set his mind at ease? No man under heaven deserves these sacrifices from us women, men. They are the enemies of our innocence and our peace. They drag us away from our parents' love and our sisters' friendship. They take us body and soul to themselves, and fasten our helpless lives to theirs as they chain up a dog to his kennel. And what does the best of them give us in return? Let me go, Laura. I'm mad when I think of it. The tears. Miserable, weak, women's tears of vexation and rage started to my eyes. She smiled sadly, and put her handkerchief over my face, to hide from me the betrayal of my own weakness, the weakness of all others which she knew that I most despised. "'Oh, Marion,' she said, "'you crying. Think what you would say to me if the places were changed, and if those tears were mine. All your love and courage and devotion—' will not alter what must happen sooner or later. Let my uncle have his way. Let us have no more troubles and heart-burnings that any sacrifice of mine can prevent. Say you will live with me, Marian, when I am married, and say no more. But I did say more. I forced back the contemptible tears that were no relief to me, and that only distressed her, and reasoned and pleaded as calmly as I could. It was of no avail. She made me twice repeat the promise to live with her when she was married, and then suddenly asked a question which turned my sorrow and my sympathy for her into a new direction. While we were at Polstein, she said, you had a letter, Marion. Her altered tone, the abrupt manner in which she looked away from me, and hid her face on my shoulder, the hesitation which silenced her before she had completed her question all told me but too plainly to whom the half-expressed inquiry pointed. "'I thought, Laura, that you and I were never to refer to him again,' I said gently. "'You had a letter from him?' she persisted. "'Yes,' I replied, "'if you must know it.' "'Do you mean to write to him again?' I hesitated. I had been afraid to tell her of his absence from England, or of the manner in which my exertions to serve his new hopes and projects had connected me with his departure. What answer could I make? He was gone, where no letters could reach him for months, perhaps for years to come. Suppose I do mean to write to him again, I said at last. What then, Laura? Her cheek grew burning hot against my neck, and her arms trembled and tightened round me. 
don't tell him about the twenty-second, she whispered. Promise, Marion, pray promise you will not even mention my name to him when you write next. I gave the promise. No words can say how sorrowfully I gave it. She instantly took her arm from my waist, walked away to the window, and stood looking out with her back to me. After a moment she spoke once more, but without turning round, without allowing me to catch the smallest glimpse of her face. "'Are you going to my uncle's room?' she asked. "'Will you say that I consent to whatever arrangement he may think best? "'Never mind leaving me, Marion. "'I shall be better alone for a little while.' I went out. If, as soon as I got into the passage, I could have transported Mr. Fairley and Sir Percival Glyde to the uttermost ends of the earth, by lifting one of my fingers, that finger would have been raised without an instant's hesitation. For once my unhappy temper now stood my friend. I should have broken down altogether and burst into a violent fit of crying, if my tears had not been all burnt up in the heat of my anger. As it was, I dashed into Mr. Fairley's room, called to him as harshly as possible, Laura consents to the twenty-second, and dashed out again, without waiting for a word of answer. I banged the door after me, and I hope I shattered Mr. Fairley's nervous system for the rest of the day. Twenty-eighth This morning... I read poor Hartwright's farewell letter over again, a doubt having crossed my mind since yesterday, whether I am acting wisely in concealing the fact of his departure from Laura. On reflection, I still think I am right. The allusions in his letter to the preparations made for the expedition to Central America all show that the leaders of it know it to be dangerous. If the discovery of this makes me uneasy, what would it make her? It is bad enough to feel that his departure has deprived us of the friend of all others to whose devotion we could trust in the hour of need, if ever that hour comes and finds us helpless. But it is far worse to know that he has gone from us to face the perils of a bad climate, a wild country, and a disturbed population. Surely it would be a cruel candour to tell Laura this, without a pressing and a positive necessity for it. I almost doubt whether I ought not to go a step further and burn the letter at once, for fear of its one day falling into wrong hands. It not only refers to Laura in terms which ought to remain a secret for ever between the writer and me, but it reiterates his suspicion so obstinate, so unaccountable, and so alarming, that he has been secretly watched since he left Limeridge. He declares that he saw the faces of the two strange men who followed him about the streets of London, watching him among the crowd which gathered at Liverpool to see the expedition embark, and he positively asserts that he heard the name of Anne Catherick pronounced behind him as he got into the boat. His own words are, These events have a meaning. 
these events must lead to a result. The mystery of Anne Catherick is not cleared up yet. She may never cross my path again, but if ever she crosses yours, make better use of the opportunity, Miss Halcombe, than I made of it. I speak on strong conviction. I entreat you to remember what I say. These are his own expressions. There is no danger of my forgetting them. My memory is only too ready to dwell on any words of Hartwright's that refer to Anne Catherick. But there is danger in my keeping the letter. The merest accident might place it at the mercy of strangers. I may fall ill, I may die. Better to burn it at once, and have one anxiety the less. It is burnt. The ashes of his farewell letter the last he may ever write to me, lie in a few black fragments on the heart. Is this the sad end to all that sad story? Oh, not the end, surely, surely not the end already. Twenty-ninth. The preparations for the marriage have begun. The dressmaker has come to receive her orders. Laura is perfectly impassive, perfectly careless about the question of all others in which a woman's personal interests are most closely bound up. She has left it all to the dressmaker and to me. If poor Hartwright had been the baronet and the husband of her father's choice, how differently she would have behaved, how anxious and capricious she would have been, and what a hard task the best of dressmakers would have found it to please her, Thirtieth. We hear every day from Sir Percival. The last news is that the alterations in his house will occupy from four to six months before they can be properly completed. If painters, paperhangers, and upholsterers could make happiness as well as splendour, I should be interested about their proceedings in Laura's future home. As it is, the only part of Sir Percival's last letter which does not leave me as it found me, perfectly indifferent to all his plans and projects, is the part which refers to the wedding tour. He proposes, as Laura is delicate, and as the winter threatens to be unusually severe, to take her to Rome and to remain in Italy until the early part of next summer. If this plan should not be approved, he is equally ready, although he has no establishment of his own in town, to spend the season in London, in the most suitable furnished house that can be obtained for the purpose. Putting myself and my own feelings entirely out of the question, which it is my duty to do, and which I have done, I, for one, have no doubt of the propriety of adopting the first of these proposals. In either case, a separation between Laura and me is inevitable. It will be a longer separation in the event of their going abroad than it would be in the event of their remaining in London. But we must set against this disadvantage the benefit to Laura on the other side of passing the winter in a mild climate and, more than that, the immense assistance in raising her spirits 
and reconciling her to her new existence, which the mere wonder and excitement of travelling for the first time in her life in the most interesting country in the world must surely afford. She is not of a disposition to find resources in the conventional gaieties and excitements of London. They would only make the first oppression of this lamentable marriage fall the heavier on her. I dread the beginning of her new life more than words can tell, but I see some hope for her if she travels. None if she remains at home. It is strange to look back at this latest entry in my journal, and to find that I am writing of the marriage and the parting with Laura, as people write of a settled thing. It seems so cold and so unfeeling to be looking at the future already in this cruelly composed way. But what other way is possible, now that the time is drawing so near? Before another month is over our heads, she will be his, Laura, instead of mine. His, Laura. I am as little able to realise the idea which those two words convey. My mind feels almost as dulled and stunned by it, as if writing of her marriage were like writing of her death. December 1st A sad, sad day, a day that I have no heart to describe at any length. After weakly putting it off last night, I was obliged to speak to her this morning of Sir Percival's proposal about the wedding to her. In the full conviction that I should be with her wherever she went, the poor child, for a child she is still in many things, was almost happy at the prospect of seeing the wonders of Florence and Rome and Naples. It nearly broke my heart to dispel her delusion, and to bring her face to face with the hard truth. I was obliged to tell her that no man tolerates a rival, not even a woman rival, in his wife's affections, when he first marries, whatever he may do afterwards. I was obliged to warn her that my chance of living with her permanently under her own roof depended entirely on my not arousing Sir Percival's jealousy and distrust by standing between them at the beginning of their marriage, in the position of the chosen depository of his wife's closest secrets. Drop by drop, I poured the profaning bitterness of this world's wisdom into that pure heart and that innocent mind, while every higher and better feeling within me recoiled from my miserable task. It is over now, she has learnt her hard, her inevitable lesson. The simple illusions of her girlhood are gone, and my hand has stripped them off. Better mine than his, that is all my consolation. Better mine than his. So the first proposal is the proposal accepted. They are to go to Italy, and I am to arrange with Sir Percival's permission, for meeting them and staying with them when they return to England. In other words, I am to ask a personal favour for the first time in my life 
and to ask it of the man of all others to whom I least desire to owe a serious obligation of any kind. Well, I think I could do even more than that for Laura's sake. Second. On looking back, I find myself always referring to Sir Percival in disparaging terms. In the turn affairs have now taken, I must and will root out my prejudice against him. I cannot think how it first got into my mind. It certainly never existed in former times. Is it Nora's reluctance to become his wife that has set me against him? Have Hartwright's perfectly intelligible prejudices infected me without my suspecting their influence? Does that letter of Anne Catherick's still leave a lurking distrust in my mind, in spite of Sir Percival's explanation and of the proof in my possession of the truth of it? I cannot account for the state of my own feelings. The one thing I am certain of is that it is my duty, doubly my duty now, not to wrong Sir Percival by unjustly distrusting him. If it has got to be a habit with me always to write of him in the same unfavourable manner, I must and will break myself of this unworthy tendency, even though the effort should force me to close the pages of my journal till the marriage is over. I am seriously dissatisfied with myself. I will write no more to-day. December 16th a whole fortnight has passed, and I have not once opened these pages. I have been long enough away from my journal to come back to it with a healthier and better mind, I hope, so far as Sir Percival is concerned. There is not much to record of the past two weeks. The dresses are almost all finished, and the new travelling trunks have been sent here from London. Poor dear Laura hardly leaves me for a moment all day and last night, when neither of us could sleep, she came and crept into my bed to talk to me there. "'I shall lose you so soon, Marion,' she said. "'I must make the most of you while I can.' "'They are to be married at Limeridge Church, and, thank heaven, not one of the neighbours is to be invited to the ceremony. The only visitor will be our old friend Mr. Arnold.' who was to come from Polesdean to give Laura away, her uncle being far too delicate to trust himself outside the door in such inclement weather as we now have. If I were not determined from this day forth to see nothing but the bright side of our prospects, the melancholy absence of any male relative of Laura's at the most important moment of her life would make me very gloomy and very distrustful of the future. But I have done with gloom and distrust, that is to say, I have done with writing about either the one or the other in this journal. Sir Percival is to arrive to-morrow. He offered, in case we wish to treat him on terms of rigid etiquette, to write and ask our clergyman to grant him the hospitality of the rectory, during the short period of his sojourn at Limeridge before the marriage. Under the circumstances, 
neither Mr. Fairley nor I thought it at all necessary for us to trouble ourselves about attending to trifling forms and ceremonies. In our wild moorland country, and in this great lonely house, we may well claim to be beyond the reach of the trivial conventionalities which hamper people in other places. I wrote to Sir Percival to thank him for his polite offer, and to beg that he would occupy his old rooms just as usual at Limeridge House. 17. He arrived to-day, looking, as I thought, a little worn and anxious, but still talking and laughing like a man in the best possible spirits. He brought with him some really beautiful presents in jewellery, which Laura received with her best grace, and, outwardly at least, with perfect self-possession. The only sign I can detect of the struggle it must cost her to preserve appearances of this trying time expresses itself in a sudden unwillingness on her part ever to be left alone. Instead of retreating to her own room, as usual, she seems to dread going there. When I went upstairs to-day after lunch to put on my bonnet for a walk, she volunteered to join me, and again, before dinner, she threw the door open between our two rooms, so that we might talk to each other while we were dressing. "'Keep me always doing something,' she said. "'Keep me always in company with somebody. Don't let me think that is all I ask now, Marian.' don't let me think. This sad change in her only increases her attractions for Sir Percival. He interprets it, I can see, to his own advantage. There is a feverish flush in her cheeks, a feverish brightness in her eyes, which he welcomes as the return of her beauty and the recovery of her spirits. She talked to-day at dinner, with a gaiety and carelessness so false, so shockingly out of her character, that I secretly longed to silence her and take her away. Sir Percival's delight and surprise appeared to be beyond all expression. The anxiety which I had noticed on his face when he arrived totally disappeared from it, and he looked, even to my eyes, a good ten years younger than he really is. There can be no doubt though some strange perversity prevents me from seeing it myself. There can be no doubt that Laura's future husband is a very handsome man. Regular features form a personal advantage to begin with, and he has them. Bright brown eyes, either in man or woman, are a great attraction, and he has them. Even baldness, when it is only baldness over the forehead, as in his case, is rather becoming than not in a man, for it heightens the head, and adds to the intelligence of the face. Grace and ease of movement, untiring animation of manner, ready, pliant, conversational powers, all these are unquestionable merits, and all these he certainly possesses, Surely Mr. Gilmore, ignorant as he is of Laura's secret, was not to blame for feeling surprised that she should repent of her marriage engagement. Anyone else in his place 
would have shared our good old friend's opinion. If I were asked at this moment to say plainly what defects I have discovered in Sir Percival, I could only point out two. One, his incessant restlessness and excitability, which may be caused naturally enough by unusual energy of character. The other, his short, sharp, ill-tempered manner of speaking to the servants, which may be only a bad habit after all. No, I cannot dispute it, and I will not dispute it. Sir Percival is a very handsome and a very agreeable man. There, I have written it down at last, and I am glad it's over. 18. Feeling weary and depressed this morning, I left Laura with Mrs. Vesey, and went out alone for one of my brisk midday walks, which I have discontinued too much of late. I took the dry, airy road over the moor that leads to Todd's Corner. After having been out half an hour, I was excessively surprised to see Sir Percival approaching me from the direction of the farm. He was walking rapidly, swinging his stick, his head erect as usual, and his shooting-jacket flying open in the wind. When we met, he did not wait for me to ask any questions. He told me at once that he had been to the farm to inquire if Mr. or Mrs. Todd had received any tidings since his last visit to Limeridge of Anne Catherick. "'You found, of course, that they had heard nothing,' I said. "'Nothing whatever,' he replied. "'I begin to be seriously afraid that we have lost her. "'Do you happen to know,' he continued, "'looking me in the face very attentively, "'if the artist, Mr. Hartwright, "'is in a position to give us any further information?' "'He has neither heard of her nor seen her since he left Cumberland,' I answered. "'Very sad,' said Sir Percival, "'speaking like a man who was disappointed, "'and yet, oddly enough, looking at the same time like a man who was relieved. It is impossible to say what misfortunes may not have happened to the miserable creature. I am inexpressibly annoyed at the failure of all my efforts to restore her to the care and protection which she so urgently needs. This time he really looked annoyed. I said a few sympathising words, and we then talked of other subjects, on our way back to the house. Surely my chance meeting with him on the moor has disclosed another favourable trait in his character. Surely it was singularly considerate and unselfish of him to think of Anne Catherick on the eve of his marriage, and to go all the way to Todd's Corner to make inquiries about her, when he might have passed the time so much more agreeably in Laura's society. Considering that he can only have acted from motives of pure charity, his conduct under the circumstances shows unusual good feeling and deserves extraordinary praise. Well, I give him extraordinary praise, and there's an end of it. Nineteen. More discoveries in the inexhaustible mine of Sir Percival's virtues. Today I approach the subject of my proposed sojourn under his wife's roof when he brings her back to England. 
I had hardly dropped my first hint in this direction, before he caught me warmly by the hand, and said I had made the very offer to him, which he had been on his side, most anxious to make to me. I was the companion of all others, whom he most sincerely longed to secure for his wife, and he begged me to believe that I had conferred a lasting favour on him, by making the proposal to live with Laura after her marriage, exactly as I had always lived with her before it. When I had thanked him, in her name and mine, for his considerate kindness to both of us, we passed next to the subject of his wedding tour, and began to talk of the English society in Rome, to which Laura was to be introduced. He ran over the names of several friends whom he expected to meet abroad this winter. They were all English, as well as I can remember, with one exception. The one exception was Count Fosco. The mention of the Count's name, and the discovery that he and his wife are likely to meet the bride and bridegroom on the continent, puts Laura's marriage for the first time in a distinctly favourable light. It is likely to be the means of healing a family feud. Hitherto, Madame Fosco has chosen to forget her obligations as Laura's aunt, out of sheer spite against the late Mr. Fairley, for his conduct in the affair of the legacy. Now, however, she can persist in this course of conduct no longer. Sir Percival and Count Fosco are old and fast friends, and their wives will have no choice but to meet on civil terms. Madame Fosco, in her maiden days, was one of the most impertinent women I ever met with, capricious, exacting, and vain to the last degree of absurdity. If her husband has succeeded in bringing her to her senses, he deserves the gratitude of every member of the family, and he may have mine to begin with. I am becoming anxious to know the Count. He is the most intimate friend of Laura's husband, and in that capacity he excites my strongest interest. Neither Laura nor I have ever seen him. All I know of him is that his accidental presence years ago, on the steps of the Trinità del Monte at Rome, assisted Sir Percival's escape from robbery and assassination at the critical moment when he was wounded in the hand, and might the next instant have been wounded in the heart. I remember also that, at the time of the late Mr. Fairley's absurd objections to his sister's marriage, the Count wrote him a very temperate and sensible letter on the subject, which, I am ashamed to say, remained unanswered. This is all I know of Sir Percival's friend. I wonder if he will ever come to England. I wonder if I shall like him. My pen is running away into mere speculation. Let me return to sober matter-of-fact. It is certain that Sir Percival's reception of my venturesome proposal to live with his wife was more than kind. It was almost affectionate. I am sure Laura's husband will have no reason to complain of me if I can only go on as I have begun. I have already declared him to be handsome, agreeable, 
full of good feeling towards the unfortunate, and full of affectionate kindness towards me. Really, I hardly know myself again, in my new character, of Sir Percival's warmest friend. Twentieth. I hate Sir Percival. I flatly deny his good looks. I consider him to be eminently ill-tempered and disagreeable, and totally wanting in kindness and good feeling. Last night the cards for the married couple were sent home. Laura opened the packet and saw her future name in print for the first time. Sir Percival looked over her shoulder familiarly at the new card which had already transformed Miss Fairley into Lady Glyde, smiled with the most odious self-complacency, and whispered something in her ear. I don't know what it was. Laura has refused to tell me. But I saw her face turn to such a deadly whiteness that I thought she would have fainted. He took no notice of the change. He seemed to be barbarously unconscious that he had said anything to pain her. All my old feelings of hostility towards him revived on the instant, and all the hours that have passed since have done nothing to dissipate them. I am more unreasonable and more unjust than ever. In three words, how glibly my pen writes them. In three words, I hate him. Twenty-first. Have the anxieties of this anxious time shaken me a little at last? I have been writing for the last few days in the tone of levity which heaven knows is far enough from my heart and which it has rather shocked me to discover on looking back at the entries in my journal. Perhaps I may have caught the feverish excitement of Laura's spirits for the last week. If so, the fit has already passed away from me, and has left me in a very strange state of mind. A persistent idea has been forcing itself on my attention ever since last night, that something will yet happen to prevent the marriage. What has produced this singular fancy? Is it the indirect result of my apprehensions for Laura's future? Or has it been unconsciously suggested to me by the increasing restlessness and irritability which I have certainly observed in Sir Percival's manner as the wedding day draws nearer and nearer? Impossible to say. I know that I have the idea. Surely the wildest idea, under the circumstances, that ever entered a woman's head. But try as I may, I cannot trace it back to its source. This last day has been all confusion and wretchedness. How can I write about it? And yet I must write. Anything is better than brooding over my own gloomy thoughts. Kind Mrs. Vesey, whom we have all too much overlooked and forgotten of late, innocently caused us a sad morning to begin with. She has been, for months past, secretly making a warm Shetland shawl for her dear pupil, a most beautiful and surprising piece of work to be done by a woman at her age and with her habits. The gift was presented this morning, and poor warm-hearted Laura completely broke down when the shawl was put proudly on her shoulders by the loving old friend and guardian of her motherless childhood. I was hardly allowed time to quiet them both, or even to dry my own eyes, when I was sent for by Mr. Fairley, to be favoured with a long recital of his arrangements 
for the preservation of his own tranquillity on the wedding day. Dear Laura was to receive his present, a shabby ring with her affectionate uncle's hair for an ornament instead of a precious stone, and with a heartless French inscription inside about congenial sentiments and eternal friendship. Dear Laura was to receive this tender tribute from my hands immediately, so that she might have plenty of time to recover from the agitation produced by the gift before she appeared in Mr. Fairley's presence. Dear Laura was to pay him a little visit that evening, and to be kind enough not to make a scene. Dear Laura was to pay him another little visit in her wedding dress the next morning, and to be kind enough again not to make a scene. Dear Laura was to look in once more for the third time before going away, but without harrowing his feelings by saying when she was going away, and without tears, in the name of pity, in the name of everything, dear Marian, that is most affectionate and most domestic and most delightfully and charmingly self-composed without tears.'—I was so exasperated by this miserable selfish trifling at such a time, that I should certainly have shocked Mr. Fairley by some of the hardest and rudest truths he has ever heard in his life, if the arrival of Mr. Arnold from Polstein had not called me away to new duties downstairs. The rest of the day is indescribable. I believe no one in the house really knew how it passed. The confusion of small events, all huddled together one on the other, bewildered everybody. There were dresses sent home that had been forgotten. There were trunks to be packed and unpacked and packed again. There were presents from friends far and near, friends high and low. We were all needlessly hurried, all nervously expectant of the morrow. Sir Percival especially was too restless now to remain five minutes together in the same place. That short, sharp cough of his troubled him more than ever. He was in and out of doors all day long, and he seemed to grow so inquisitive on a sudden that he questioned the very strangers who came on small errands to the house. Add to all this the one perpetual thought in Laura's mind and mine that we were to part the next day, and the haunting dread unexpressed by either of us and yet ever present to both, that this deplorable marriage might prove to be the one fatal error of her life, and the one hopeless sorrow of mine. For the first time in all the years of our close and happy intercourse, we almost avoided looking each other in the face, and we refrained by common consent from speaking together in private through the whole evening. I can dwell on it no longer. Whatever future sorrows may be in store for me, I shall always look back on this twenty-first of December as the most comfortless and most miserable day of my life. I am writing these lines in the solitude of my own room, long after midnight, 
having just come back from a stolen look at Laura in her pretty little white bed, the bed she has occupied since the days of her girlhood. There she lay, unconscious that I was looking at her, quiet, more quiet than I had dared to hope, but not sleeping. The glimmer of her nightlight showed me that her eyes were only partially closed. The traces of tears glistened between her eyelids. My little keepsake, only a brooch, lay on the table at her bedside with her prayer-book, and the miniature portrait of her father, which she takes with her wherever she goes. I waited a moment, looking at her from behind her pillow, as she lay beneath me, with one arm and hand resting on the white coverlid, so still, so quietly breathing, that the frill on her nightdress never moved. I waited, looking at her, as I have seen her thousands of times, as I shall never see her again, and then stole back to my room, my own love, with all your wealth and all your beauty, how friendless you are, the one man who would give his heart's life to serve you is far away, tossing this stormy night on the awful sea. Who else is left to you? No father, no brother, no living creature, but the helpless, useless woman who writes these sad lines, and watches by you for the morning, in sorrow that she cannot compose, in doubt that she cannot conquer. Oh, what a trust is to be placed in that man's hands to-morrow, if ever he forgets it, if ever he injures a hair of her head! The twenty-second of December, seven o'clock, a wild, unsettled morning. She has just risen, better and calmer, now that the time has come, than she was yesterday. Ten o'clock, she is dressed. We have kissed each other. We have promised each other not to lose courage. I am away for a moment in my own room, in the whirl and confusion of my thoughts. I can detect that strange fancy of some hindrance happening to stop the marriage, still hanging about my mind. Is it hanging about his mind, too? I see him from the window, moving hither and thither uneasily among the carriages at the door. How can I write such folly? The marriage is a certainty. In less than half an hour we start for the church. Eleven o'clock. It is all over. They are married. Three o'clock. They are gone. I am blind with crying. I can write no more. The first epoch of the story closes here. End of chapter 10「Eleven of the Woman in White by Wilkie Collins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tony Addison. The Second Epoch. The Story Continued by Marion Halcombe. One. Blackwater Park, Hampshire. June eleventh, eighteen fifty. Six months to look back on, six long lonely months since Laura and I last saw each other. How many days have I still to wait? Only one. Tomorrow, the twelfth, 
the travellers returned to England. I can hardly realise my own happiness. I can hardly believe that the next four-and-twenty hours will complete the last day of separation between Laura and me. She and her husband have been in Italy all the winter, and afterwards in the Tyrol. They come back, accompanied by Count Fosco and his wife, who propose to settle somewhere in the neighbourhood of London, and who have engaged to stay at Blackwater Park for the summer months, before deciding on a place of residence. So long as Laura returns, no matter who returns with her, Sir Percival may fill the house from floor to ceiling, if he likes, on condition that his wife and I inhabit it together. Meanwhile, here I am, established at Blackwater Park, the ancient and interesting seat, as the county history obligingly informs me, of Sir Percival Glyde, Bart, and the future abiding place as I may now venture to add on my account, of plain Marion Halcombe, spinster, now settled in a snug little sitting-room, with a cup of tea by her side, and all her earthly possessions ranged round her in three boxes and a bag. I left Limeridge yesterday, having received Laura's delightful letter from Paris the day before. I had been previously uncertain whether I was to meet them in London or in Hampshire, but this last letter informed me that Sir Percival proposed to land at Southampton, and to travel straight on to his country house. He has spent so much money abroad, that he has none left to defray the expenses of living in London for the remainder of the season, and he is economically resolved to pass the summer and autumn quietly at Blackwater. Laura has had more than enough of excitement and change of scene, and is pleased at the prospect of country tranquillity and retirement, which her husband's prudence provides for her. As for me, I am ready to be happy anywhere in her society. We are all, therefore, well contented in our various ways to begin with. Last night I slept in London, and was delayed there so long to-day by various calls and commissions that I did not reach Blackwater this evening till after dusk. Judging by my vague impressions of the place thus far, it is the exact opposite of Limeridge. The house is situated on a dead flat, and seems to be shut in, almost suffocated to my north-country notions by trees. I have seen nobody but the manservant to open the door to me, and the housekeeper, a very civil person, who showed me the way to my own room and got me my tea. I have a nice little boudoir and bedroom, at the end of a long passage on the first floor. The servants and some of the spare rooms are on the second floor, and all the living rooms are on the ground floor. I have not seen one of them yet and I know nothing about the house, except that one wing of it is said to be five hundred years old, that it had a moat round it once, and that it gets its name of Blackwater from a lake in the park. Eleven o'clock has just struck, in a ghostly and solemn manner, from a turret over the centre of the house, which I saw when I came in.
a large dog has been woke, apparently by the sound of the bell, and is howling and yawning drearily somewhere round a corner. I hear echoing footsteps in the passages below, and the iron thumping of bolts and bars at the house door. The servants are evidently going to bed. Shall I follow their example? No, I am not half sleepy enough. Sleepy, did I say? I feel as if I should never close my eyes again. The bare anticipation of seeing that dear face and hearing that well-known voice to-morrow keeps me in a perpetual fever of excitement. If I only had the privileges of a man, I would order out Sir Percival's best horse instantly and tear away on a night gallop eastward to meet the rising sun. A long, hard, heavy, ceaseless gallop of hours and hours, like the famous highwayman's ride to York. Being, however, nothing but a woman, condemned to patience, propriety, and petticoats for life, I must respect the housekeeper's opinions, and try to compose myself in some feeble and feminine way. Reading is out of the question. I can't fix my attention on books. Let me try if I can write myself into sleepiness and fatigue. My journal has been very much neglected of late. What can I recall? Standing, as I now do, on the threshold of a new life. Of persons and events, of chances and changes during the past six months. The long, weary, empty interval since Laura's wedding day. Walter Hartwright is uppermost in my memory, and he passes first in the shadowy procession of my absent friends. I received a few lines from him after the landing of the expedition in Honduras, written more cheerfully and hopefully than he has written yet. A month or six weeks later, I saw an extract from an American newspaper describing the departure of the adventurers on their inland journey. They were last seen entering a wild primeval forest, each man with his rifle on his shoulder and his baggage at his back. Since that time, civilization has lost all trace of them. Not a line more have I received from Walter. Not a fragment of news from the expedition has appeared in any of the public journals. The same dense, disheartening obscurity hangs over the fate and fortunes of Anne Catherick and her companion, Mrs. Clements. Nothing whatever has been heard of either of them. Whether they are in the country or out of it, whether they are living or dead, no one knows. Even Sir Percival's solicitor has lost all hope, and has ordered the useless search after the fugitives to be finally given up. Our good old friend, Mr. Gilmore, has met with a sad check in his active professional career. Early in the spring we were alarmed by hearing that he had been found insensible at his desk, and that the seizure was pronounced to be an apoplectic fit. He had been long complaining of fullness and oppression in the head, and his doctor had warned him of the consequences that would follow 
his persistency in continuing to work, early and late, as if he were still a young man. The result now is that he has been positively ordered to keep out of his office for a year to come at least, and to seek repose of body and relief of mind by altogether changing his usual mode of life. The business is left, accordingly, to be carried on by his partner, and he is himself at this moment away in Germany, visiting some relations who are settled there in mercantile pursuits. Thus another true friend and trustworthy adviser is lost to us. Lost, I earnestly hope and trust, for a time only. Poor Mrs. Vesey travelled with me as far as London. It was impossible to abandon her to solitude at Limeridge, after Laura and I had both left the house, and we have arranged that she is to live with an unmarried younger sister of hers, who keeps a school at Clapham. She is to come here this autumn to visit her pupil, I might almost say her adopted child. I saw the good old lady safe to her destination, and left her in the care of her relative, quietly happy at the prospect of seeing Laura again in a few months' time. As for Mr. Fairley, I believe I am guilty of no injustice if I describe him as being unutterably relieved by having the house clear of us women. The idea of his missing his niece is simply preposterous. He used to let months pass in the old times without attempting to see her, and in my case and Mrs. Vase's, I take leave to consider his telling us both that he was half heartbroken at our departure, to be equivalent to a confession that he was secretly rejoiced to get rid of us. His last caprice has led him to keep two photographers incessantly employed in producing sun-pictures of all the treasures and curiosities in his possession. One complete copy of the collection of the photographs is to be presented to the Mechanics Institution of Carlisle, mounted on the finest cardboard, with ostentatious red-letter inscriptions underneath. Madonna and Child by Raphael, in the possession of Frederick Fairley, Esquire. Copper coin of the period of Tiglath by Lisa, in the possession of Frederick Fairley, Esquire. Unique Rembrandt etching, known all over Europe as the smudge, from a printer's blot in the corner, which exists in no other copy, valued at three hundred guineas, in the possession of Frederick Fairley, Esquire. Dozens of photographs of this sort, and all inscribed in this manner, were completed before I left Cumberland, and hundreds more remained to be done. With this new interest to occupy him, Mr. Fairley will be a happy man for months and months to come, and the two unfortunate photographers will share the social martyrdom which he has hitherto inflicted on his valet alone. 
so much for the persons and events which hold the foremost place in my memory. What next of the one person who holds the foremost place in my heart? Laura has been present to my thoughts all the while I have been writing these lines. What can I recall of her during the past six months, before I close my journal for the night? I have only her letters to guide me, and on the most important of all the questions which our correspondence can discuss, every one of those letters leaves me in the dark. Does he treat her kindly? Is she happier now than she was when I parted with her on the wedding day? All my letters have contained these two inquiries, put more or less directly, now in one form and now in another, and all, on that point only, have remained without reply, or have been answered as if my questions merely related to the state of her health. She informs me, over and over again, that she is perfectly well, that travelling agrees with her, that she is getting through the winter for the first time in her life, without catching cold. But not a word can I find anywhere which tells me plainly that she is reconciled to her marriage, and that she can now look back to the 22nd of December without any bitter feelings of repentance and regret. The name of her husband is only mentioned in her letters, as she might mention the name of a friend who was travelling with them, and who had undertaken to make all the arrangements for the journey. Sir Percival has settled that we leave on such a day. Sir Percival has decided that we travel by such a road. Sometimes she writes Percival only, but very seldom. In nine cases out of ten she gives him his title. I cannot find that his habits and opinions have changed and coloured hers in any single particular. The usual moral transformation which is insensibly wrought in a young, fresh, sensitive woman by her marriage seems never to have taken place in Laura. She writes of her own thoughts and impressions amid all the wonders she has seen, exactly as she might have written to someone else if I had been travelling with her instead of her husband. I see no betrayal anywhere of sympathy of any kind existing between them. Even when she wanders from the subject of her travels, and occupies herself with the prospects that await her in England, her speculations are busied with her future as my sister, and persistently neglect to notice her future as Sir Percival's wife. In all this, there is no undertone of complaint to warn me that she is absolutely unhappy in her married life. The impression I have derived from our correspondence does not, thank God, lead me to any such distressing conclusion as that. I only see a sad torpor, an unchangeable indifference, when I turn my mind from her in the old character of a sister, and look at her through the medium of her letters in the new character of a wife. In other words, it is always Laura Fairley who has been writing to me for the last six months, and never Lady Glyde. The strange silence 
which she maintains on the subject of her husband's character and conduct, she preserves with almost equal resolution in the few references which her later letters contain to the name of her husband's bosom friend, Count Fosco. For some unexplained reason, the Count and his wife appear to have changed their plans abruptly at the end of last autumn, and to have gone to Vienna instead of going to Rome, at which latter place Sir Percival had expected to find them when he left England. They only quitted Vienna in the spring, and travelled as far as the Tyrol to meet the bride and bridegroom on their homeward journey. Laura writes readily enough about the meeting with Madame Fosco, and assures me that she has found her aunt so much changed for the better, so much quieter, and so much more sensible as a wife than she was as a single woman, that I shall hardly know her again when I see her here. But on the subject of Count Fosco, who interests me infinitely more than his wife, Laura is provokingly circumspect and silent. She only says that he puzzles her, and that she will not tell me what her impression of him is until I have seen him and formed my own opinion first. This, to my mind, looks ill for the Count. Laura has preserved, far more perfectly than most people do in later life, the child's subtle faculty of knowing a friend by instinct, and if I am right in assuming that her first impression of Count Fosco has not been favourable, I, for one, am in some danger of doubting and distrusting that illustrious foreigner before I have so much as set eyes on him. But patience, patience, this uncertainty and many uncertainties more, cannot last much longer. Tomorrow will see all my doubts in a fair way of being cleared up, sooner or later. Twelve o'clock has struck, and I have just come back to close these pages, after looking out at my open window. It is a still, sultry, moonless night. The stars are dull and few. The trees that shut out the view on all sides look dimly black and solid in the distance, like a great wall of rock. I hear the croaking of frogs, faint and far off, and the echoes of the great clock hum in the airless calm, long after the strokes have ceased. I wonder how Blackwater Park will look in the daytime. I don't altogether like it by night. Twelve. A day of investigations and discoverers. A more interesting day for many reasons than I had ventured to anticipate. I began my sightseeing, of course, with the house. The main body of the building is of the time of that highly overrated woman, Queen Elizabeth. On the ground floor there are two hugely long galleries with low ceilings lying parallel with each other, and rendered additionally dark and dismal by hideous family portraits, every one of which I should like to burn. 
the rooms on the floor above the two galleries are kept in tolerable repair but are very seldom used the civil housekeeper who acted as my guide offered to show me over them but considerately added that she feared i should find them rather out of order my respect for the integrity of my own petticoats and stockings infinitely exceeds my respect for all the elizabethan bedrooms in the kingdom so i positively declined exploring the upper regions of dust and dirt at the risk of soiling my nice clean clothes the housekeeper said i am quite of your opinion miss and appeared to think me the most sensible woman she had met with for a long time past so much then for the main building two wings are added at either end of it the half-ruined wing on the left as you approach the house was once a place of residence standing by itself and was built in the fourteenth century one of sir percival's maternal ancestors i don't remember and don't care which tacked on the main building at right angles to it in the aforesaid queen elizabeth's time the housekeeper told me that the architecture of the old wing both outside and inside was considered remarkably fine by good judges on further investigation i discovered that good judges could only exercise their abilities on sir percival's piece of antiquity by previously dismissing from their minds all fear of damp darkness and rats under these circumstances i unhesitatingly acknowledged myself to be no judge at all and suggested that we should treat the old wing precisely as we had previously treated the elizabethan bedrooms once more the housekeeper said i am quite of your opinion miss and once more she looked at me with undisguised admiration of my extraordinary common sense we went next to the wing on the right which was built by way of completing the wonderful architectural jumble at blackwater park in the time of george the second this is the habitable part of the house which has been repaired and redecorated inside on laura's account my two rooms and all the good bedrooms besides are on the first floor and the basement contains a drawing-room a dining-room a morning-room a library and a pretty little boudoir for laura all very nicely ornamented in the bright modern way and all very elegantly furnished with the delightful modern luxuries none of the rooms are anything like so large and airy as our rooms at limeridge but they all look pleasant to live in i was terribly afraid from what i had heard at blackwater park of fatiguing antique chairs and dismal stained glass and musty frowsy hangings 
and all the barbarous lumber which people born without a sense of comfort accumulate about them in defiance of the consideration due to the convenience of their friends it is an inexpressible relief to find that the nineteenth century has invaded this strange future home of mine and has swept the dirty good old times out of the way of our daily life i dawdled away the morning part of the time in the rooms downstairs and part out of doors in the great square which is formed by the three sides of the house and by the lofty iron railings and gates which protect it in front a large circular fish-pond with stone sides and an allegorical leaden monster in the middle occupies the centre of the square the pond itself is full of gold and silver fish and is encircled by a broad belt of the softest turf i ever walked on i loitered here on the shady side pleasantly enough till luncheon time and after that took my broad straw hat and wandered out alone in the warm lovely sunlight to explore the grounds daylight confirmed the impression which i had felt the night before of there being too many trees at blackwater the house is stifled by them they are for the most part young and planted far too thickly i suspect there must have been a ruinous cutting down of timber all over the estate before sir percival's time and an angry anxiety on the part of the next possessor to fill up all the gaps as thickly and rapidly as possible after looking about me in front of the house i observed a flower-garden on my left hand and walked towards it to see what i could discover in that direction on a nearer view the garden proved to be small and poor and ill-kept i left it behind me opened a little gate in a ring fence and found myself in a plantation of fir-trees a pretty winding path artificially made led me on among the trees and my north country experience soon informed me that i was approaching sandy heathy ground after a walk of more than half a mile i should think among the firs the path took a sharp turn the trees abruptly ceased to appear on either side of me and i found myself standing suddenly on the margin of a vast open space and looking down at the blackwater lake from which the house takes its name the ground shelving away below me was all sand with a few little heathy hillocks to break the monotony of it in certain places the lake itself had evidently once flowed to the spot on which i stood and had been gradually wasted and dried up to less than a third of its former size i saw its still stagnant waters a quarter of a mile away from me in the hollow separated into pools and ponds by twining reeds and rushes and little knolls of earth 
on the farther bank from me the trees rose thickly again and shut out the view and cast their black shadows on the sluggish shallow water as i walked down to the lake i saw that the ground on its farther side was damp and marshy overgrown with rank grass and dismal willows the water which was clear enough on the open sandy side where the sun shone looked black and poisonous opposite to me where it lay deeper under the shade of the spongy banks and the rank overhanging thickets and tangled trees the frogs were croaking and the rats were slipping in and out of the shadowy water like live shadows themselves as i got nearer to the marshy side of the lake i saw here lying half in and half out of the water the rotten wreck of an old overturned boat with a sickly spot of sunlight glimmering through a gap in the trees on its dry surface and a snake basking in the midst of the spot fantastically coiled and treacherously still far and near the view suggested the same dreary impressions of solitude and decay and the glorious brightness of the summer sky overhead seemed only to deepen and harden the gloom and barrenness of the wilderness on which it shone i turned and retraced my steps to the high heathy ground directing them a little aside from my former path towards a shabby old wooden shed which stood on the outer skirt of the fir plantation and which had hitherto been too unimportant to share my notice with the wide wild prospect of the lake on approaching the shed i found that it had once been a boathouse, and that an attempt had apparently been made to convert it afterwards into a sort of rude arbour by planting inside it a firwood seat, a few stools, and a table. I entered the place and sat down for a little while to rest and get my breath again. I had not been in the boathouse more than a minute when it struck me that the sound of my own quick breathing was very strangely echoed by something beneath me i listened intently for a moment and heard a low thick sobbing breath that seemed to come from the ground under the seat which i was occupying my nerves are not easily shaken by trifles but on this occasion I started to my feet in a fright, called out, received no answer, summoned back my recreant courage, and looked under the seat. There, crouched up in the farthest corner, lay the forlorn cause of my terror, in the shape of a poor little dog, a black and white spaniel. The creature moaned feebly when I looked at it and called to it, but never stirred. I moved away the seat and looked closer. 
the poor little dog's eyes were glazing fast, and there were spots of blood on its glossy white side. The misery of a weak, helpless, dumb creature is surely one of the saddest of all the mournful sights which this world can show. I lifted the poor dog in my arms as gently as I could, and contrived a sort of makeshift hammock for him to lie in, by gathering up the front of my dress all round him. In this way I took the creature as painlessly as possible, and as fast as possible, back to the house. Finding no one in the hall, I went up at once to my own sitting-room, made a bed for the dog with one of my old shawls, and rang the bell. The largest and fattest of all possible housemaids answered it, in a state of cheerful stupidity which would have provoked the patience of a saint. The girl's fat, shapeless face actually stretched into a broad grin at the sight of the wounded creature on the floor. "'What do you see there to laugh at?' I asked, as angrily as if she had been a servant of my own. "'Do you know whose dog it is?' "'No, miss, that I certainly don't.' She stooped and looked down at the spaniel's injured side. Brightened suddenly with the irradiation of a new idea, and pointing to the wound with a chuckle of satisfaction, said, "'That's Baxter's doings, that is.' I was so exasperated that I could have boxed her ears. Baxter, I said, who is the brute you call Baxter? The girl grinned again more cheerfully than ever. Bless you, miss. Baxter's the keeper, and when he finds strange dogs hunting about, he takes and shoots em. It's keeper's duty, miss. I think that dog will die. Here's where he's been shot, ain't it? That's Baxter's doing, that is. Baxter's doing, miss, and Baxter's duty. I was almost wicked enough to wish that Baxter had shot the housemaid instead of the dog. Seeing that it was quite useless to expect this densely impenetrable personage to give me any help in relieving the suffering creature at our feet, I told her to request the housekeeper's attendance with my compliments. She went out exactly as she had come in, grinning from ear to ear. As the door closed on her, she said to herself softly, It's Baxter's doings and Baxter's duty. That's what it is. The housekeeper a person of some education and intelligence, thoughtfully brought upstairs with her some milk and some warm water. The instant she saw the dog on the floor, she started and changed colour. "'Why, Lord bless me!' cried the housekeeper. "'That must be Mrs. Catherick's dog.' "'Whose?' I asked, in the utmost astonishment. "'Mrs. Catherick's. You seem to know Mrs. Catherick, Miss Halcombe?' "'Not personally.' "'But I have heard of her. Does she live here? Has she had any news of her daughter?' "'No, Miss Halcombe. She came here to ask for news.' "'When?' 
only yesterday as she said someone had reported that a stranger answering to the description of her daughter had been seen in our neighbourhood no such report has reached us here and no such report was known in the village when i sent to make inquiries there on mrs catherick's account she certainly brought this poor little dog with her when she came and i saw it trot out after her when she went away i suppose the creature strayed into the plantations and got shut oh where did you find it miss harcombe in the old shed that looks out on the lake ah yes that is the plantation side and the poor thing dragged itself i suppose to the nearest shelter as dogs will to die if you can moisten its lips with the milk miss harcombe i will wash the clotted hair from the wound i am very much afraid it is too late to do any good however we can but try mrs catherick the name still rang in my ears as if the housekeeper had only that moment surprised me by uttering it while we were attending to the dog the words of walter hartwright's caution to me returned to my memory if ever anne catherick crosses your path make better use of the opportunity miss holcombe than i made of it the finding of the wounded spaniel had led me already to the discovery of mrs catherick's visit to blackwater park and that event might lead in its turn to something more i determined to make the most of the chance which was now offered to me and to gain as much information as i could did you say that mrs catherick lived anywhere in this neighbourhood i asked oh dear no said the housekeeper she lives at farmingham quite at the other end of the county of five and twenty miles off at least i suppose you have known mrs catherick for some years on the contrary miss harcombe i never saw her before she came here yesterday i had heard of her of course because i had heard of sir percival's kindness in putting her daughter under medical care mrs catherick is rather a strange person in her manners but extremely respectable-looking she seemed sorely put out when she found that there was no foundation none at least that any of us could discover for the report of her daughter having been seen in this neighbourhood i am rather interested about mrs catherick i went on continuing the conversation as long as possible i wish i had arrived here soon enough to see her yesterday did she stay for any length of time yes said the housekeeper she stayed for some time and i think she would have remained longer if i had not been called away to speak to a strange gentleman a gentleman who came to ask when sir percival was expected back mrs catherick got up and left at once when she heard the maid tell me what the visitor's errand was she said to me at parting that there was no need to tell sir percival of her coming here i thought that rather an odd remark to make especially to a person in my responsible situation i thought it an odd remark too sir percival had certainly led me to believe at limeridge that the most perfect confidence existed between himself and mrs catherick if that was the case why should she be anxious to have her visit at blackwater park kept a secret from him probably i said 
seeing that the housekeeper expected me to give my opinion on Mrs. Catherick's parting words. Uh, probably she thought the announcement of her visit might vex Sir Percival to no purpose by reminding him that her lost daughter was not found yet. Did she talk much on that subject? Very little, replied the housekeeper. She talked principally of Sir Percival, and asked a great many questions about where he had been travelling, and what sort of lady his new wife was. She seemed to be more soured and put out than distressed, by failing to find any traces of her daughter in these parts. I give her up, for the last word she said that I can remember. I give her up, ma'am, for lost. And from that she passed at once to her questions about Lady Glyde, wanting to know if she was a handsome, amiable lady, comely and healthy and young. Ah, dear, I thought how it would end. Look, Miss Harcombe, the poor thing is out of its misery at last. The dog was dead. It had given a faint sobbing cry. It had suffered an instant's convulsion of the limbs, just as those last words, comely and healthy and young, dropped from the housekeeper's lips. The change had happened with startling suddenness. In one moment the creature lay lifeless under our hands. Eight o'clock. I have just returned from dining downstairs in solitary state. The sunset is burning redly on the wilderness of trees that I see from my window, and I am poring over my journal again to calm my impatience for the return of the travellers. They ought to have arrived by my calculations before this. How still and lonely the house is in the drowsy evening quiet. Oh, me! How many minutes more before I hear the carriage wheels and run downstairs to find myself in Laura's arms? The poor little dog! I wish my first day at Blackwater Park had not been associated with death, though it is only the death of a stray animal. Well, Mingham, I see, on looking back through these private pages of mine, that Wilmingham is the name of the place where Mrs. Catherick lives. Her note is still in my possession, the note in answer to that letter about her unhappy daughter, which Sir Percival obliged me to write. One of these days, when I can find a safe opportunity, I will take the note with me by way of introduction, and try what I can make of Mrs. Catherick at a personal interview. I don't understand her wishing to conceal her visit to this place from Sir Percival's knowledge, and I don't feel half so sure, as the housekeeper seems to do, that her daughter Anne is not in the neighbourhood after all. What would Walter Hartwright have said in this emergency? Poor dear Hartwright, I am beginning to feel the want of his honest advice and his willing help already. Surely I heard something. Was it a bustle of footsteps below stairs? Yes, I hear the horse's feet. I hear the rolling wheels. End of chapter 11
Chapter Twelve of The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tony Addison. Two. June fifteenth. The confusion of their arrival has had time to subside. Two days have elapsed since the return of the travellers and that interval has sufficed to put the new machinery of our lives at Blackwater Park in fair working order. I may now return to my journal with some little chance of being able to continue the entries in it as collectedly as usual. I think I must begin by putting down an odd remark which has suggested itself to me since Laura came back. When two members of a family or two intimate friends are separated, and one goes abroad, and one remains at home, the return of the relative or friend who has been travelling always seems to place the relative or friend who has been staying at home at a painful disadvantage when the two first meet. The sudden encounter of the new thoughts and new habits, eagerly gained in the one case, with the old thoughts and old habits passively preserved in the other, seems at first to part the sympathies of the most loving relatives and the fondest friends, and to set a sudden strangeness, unexpected by both and uncontrollable by both, between them on either side. After the first happiness of my meeting with Laura was over, after we had sat down together hand in hand, to recover breath enough and calmness enough to talk. I felt this strangeness instantly, and I could see that she felt it too. It has partially worn away, now that we have fallen back into most of our old habits, and it will probably disappear before long. But it has certainly had an influence over the first impressions that I have formed of her, now that we are living together again. For which reason only I have thought fit to mention it here. She has found me unaltered, but I have found her changed. Changed in person, and in one respect changed in character. I cannot absolutely say that she is less beautiful than she used to be, I can only say that she is less beautiful to me. Others, who do not look at her with my eyes and my recollections, would probably think her improved. There is more colour and more decision and roundness of outline in her face than there used to be, and her figure seems more firmly set and more sure and easy in all its movements than it was in her maiden days. But I miss something when I look at her, something that once belonged to the happy, innocent life of Laura Fairley, and that I cannot find in Lady Glyde. There was in the old times a freshness, a softness, an ever-varying and yet ever-remaining tenderness of beauty in her face, the charm of which it is not possible to express in words, or, as poor Hartwright used often to say, in painting either. 
this is gone. I thought I saw the faint reflection of it for a moment, when she turned pale under the agitation of our sudden meeting on the evening of her return, but it has never reappeared since. None of her letters had prepared me for a personal change in her. On the contrary, they had led me to expect that her marriage had left her, in appearance at least, quite unaltered. Perhaps I read her letters wrongly in the past, and am now reading her face wrongly in the present. No matter. Whether her beauty has gained, or whether it has lost in the last six months, the separation either way has made her own dear self more precious to me than ever, and that is one good result of her marriage at any rate. The second change, the change that I have observed in her character, has not surprised me, because I was prepared for it in this case by the tone of her letters. Now that she is at home again, I find her just as unwilling to enter into any details on the subject of her married life, as I had previously found her all through the time of our separation, when we could only communicate with each other by writing. At the first approach I made to the forbidden topic, she put her hand on my lips with a look and gesture which, touchingly, almost painfully, recalled to my memory the days of her girlhood and the happy bygone time when there were no secrets between us. "'Whenever you and I are together, Marion,' she said, we shall both be happier and easier with one another if we accept my married life for what it is and say and think as little about it as possible. I would tell you everything, darling, about myself, she went on, nervously buckling and unbuckling the ribbon round my waist. If my confidences could only end there, but they could not, they would lead me into confidences about my husband too, and now I am married, I think I had better avoid them for his sake, and for your sake, and for mine. I don't say that they would distress you, or distress me. I wouldn't have you think that for the world. But I want to be so happy, now I have got you back again, and I want you to be so happy too. She broke off abruptly, and looked round the room, my own sitting-room, in which we were talking. Ah! she cried, clapping her hands with a bright smile of recognition. Another old friend found already. Your bookcase, Marion, your dear little shabby old satin-wood bookcase. How glad I am you brought it with you from Limeridge. And the horrid, heavy man's umbrella that you always would walk out with when it rained. And first and foremost of all, your own dear dark clever gypsy face looking at me just as usual it is so like home again to be here how can we make it more like home still i will put my father's portrait in your room instead of in mine and i will keep all my little treasures from limeridge here and we will pass hours and hours every day with these four friendly walls round us oh marion she said suddenly, seating herself on a footstool at my knees, and looking up 
earnestly in my face. Promise you will never marry and leave me. It is selfish to say so, but you are so much better off as a single woman, unless, unless you are very fond of your husband. But you won't be very fond of anybody but me, will you? She stopped again, crossed my hands on my lap, and laid her face on them. Have you been writing many letters, and receiving many letters lately? She asked, in low, suddenly altered tones. I understood what the question meant, but I thought it my duty not to encourage her by meeting her halfway. Have you heard from him? She went on, coaxing me to forgive the more direct appeal on which she now ventured, by kissing my hands, upon which her face still rested. Is he well and happy, and getting on in his profession? Has he recovered himself and forgotten me? She should not have asked those questions. She should have remembered her own resolution on the morning when Sir Percival held her to her marriage engagement, and when she resigned the book of Hartwright's drawings into my hands for ever. But, ah me, where is the faultless human creature who can persevere in a good resolution without sometimes failing and falling back? Where is the woman who has ever really torn from her heart the image that has been once fixed in it by a true love? Books tell us that such unearthly creatures have existed, but what does our own experience say in answer to books? I made no attempt to remonstrate with her, perhaps because I sincerely appreciated the fearless candour which let me see what other women in her position might have had reasons for concealing even from their dearest friends, perhaps because I felt in my own heart and conscience that in her place I should have asked the same questions and had the same thought. All I could honestly do was to reply that I had not written to him or heard from him lately, and then to turn the conversation to less dangerous topics. There has been much to sadden me in our interview. My first confidential interview with her since her return. The change which our marriage has produced in our relations towards each other by placing a forbidden subject between us for the first time in our lives, the melancholy conviction of the dearth of all warmth of feeling, of all close sympathy between her husband and herself, which her own unwilling words now force on my mind, the distressing discovery that the influence of that ill-fated attachment still remains, no matter how innocently, how harmlessly, rooted as deeply as ever in her heart. All these are disclosures to sadden any woman who loves her as dearly and feels for her as acutely as I do. There is only one consolation to set against them, a consolation that ought to comfort me and that does comfort me, all the graces and gentleness of her character, 
all the frank affection of her nature, all the sweet, simple, womanly charms, which used to make her the darling and delight of every one who approached her, have come back to me with herself. Of my other impressions, I am sometimes a little inclined to doubt. Of this last, best, happiest of all impressions, I grow more and more certain every hour in the day. Let me turn now from her to her travelling companions. Her husband must engage my attention first. What have I observed in Sir Percival since his return to improve my opinion of him? I can hardly say. Small vexations and annoyances seem to have beset him since he came back, and no man under those circumstances is ever presented at his best. He looks, as I think, thinner than he was when he left England. His wearisome cough and his comfortless restlessness have certainly increased. His manner, at least his manner towards me, is much more abrupt than it used to be. He greeted me, on the evening of his return, with little or nothing of the ceremony and civility of former times. No polite speeches of welcome, no appearance of extraordinary gratification at seeing me, nothing but a short shake of the hand, and a sharp, How do you do, Miss Harkham? Glad to see you again. He seemed to accept me as one of the necessary fixtures of Blackwater Park, to be satisfied at finding me established in my proper place, and then to pass me over altogether. Most men show something of their disposition in their own houses, which they have concealed elsewhere, and Sir Percival has already displayed a mania for order and regularity, which is quite a new revelation of him, so far as my previous knowledge of his character is concerned. If I take a book from the library and leave it on the table, he follows me and puts it back again. If I rise from a chair and let it remain where I have been sitting, he carefully restores it to its proper place against the wall. He picks up stray flower blossoms from the carpet and mutters to himself as discontentedly as if they were hot cinders burning holes in it and he storms at the servants if there is a crease in the tablecloth or a knife missing from its place at the dinner-table, as fiercely as if they had personally insulted him. I have already referred to the small annoyances which appear to have troubled him since his return. Much of the alteration for the worse which I have noticed in him may be due to these, I try to persuade myself that it is so, because I am anxious not to be disheartened already about the future. It is certainly trying to any man's temper to be met by a vexation the moment he sets foot in his own house again, after a long absence, and this annoying circumstance did really happen to Sir Percival in my presence. On the evening of their arrival, the housekeeper followed me into the hall, 
to receive her master and mistress and their guests. The instant he saw her, Sir Percival asked if anyone had called lately. The housekeeper mentioned to him, in reply, what she had previously mentioned to me, the visit of the strange gentleman to make inquiries about the time of her master's return. He asked immediately for the gentleman's name. No name had been left. The gentleman's business. No business had been mentioned. What was the gentleman like? The housekeeper tried to describe him, but failed to distinguish the nameless visitor by any personal peculiarity which her master could recognise. Sir Percival frowned, stamped angrily on the floor, and walked on into the house, taking no notice of anybody. Why he should have been so discomposed by a trifle I cannot say. But he was seriously discomposed beyond all doubt. Upon the whole, it will be best, perhaps, if I abstain from forming a decisive opinion of his manners, language, and conduct in his own house, until time has enabled him to shake off the anxieties, whatever they may be, which now evidently troubled his mind in secret. I will turn over to a new page, and my pen shall let Laura's husband alone for the present. THE TWO GUESTS THE COUNT AND COUNTESS FOSCO COME NEXT IN MY CATALOGUE I will dispose of the Countess first, so as to have done with the woman as soon as possible. Laura was certainly not chargeable with any exaggeration in writing me word that I should hardly recognise her aunt again when we met. Never before have I beheld such a change produced in a woman by her marriage as has been produced in Madame Fosco. As Eleanor Fairley, aged seven and thirty, she was always talking pretentious nonsense and always worrying the unfortunate men with every small exaction which a vain and foolish woman can impose on long-suffering male humanity. As Madame Fosco, aged three and forty, she sits for hours together without saying a word, frozen up in the strangest manner in herself. The hideously ridiculous lovelocks which used to hang on either side of her face, are now replaced by stiff little rows of very short curls, of the sort one sees in old-fashioned wigs. A plain matronly cap covers her head, and makes her look, for the first time in her life since I remember her, like a decent woman. Nobody, putting her husband out of the question, of course, now sees in her what everybody once saw. I mean the structure of the female skeleton in the upper regions of the collar-bones and the shoulder-blades. 
clad in quiet black or grey gowns, made high round the throat. Dresses that she would have laughed at, or screamed at, as the whim of the moment inclined her, in her maiden days. She sits speechless in corners. Her dry white hands, so dry that the pores of her skin look chalky, incessantly engaged, either in monotonous embroidery work, or in rolling up endless cigarettes for the Count's own particular smoking. On the few occasions when her cold blue eyes are off her work, they are generally turned on her husband, with the look of mute, submissive inquiry which we are all familiar with in the eyes of a faithful dog. The only approach to an inward thaw which I have yet detected under her outer covering of icy constraint has betrayed itself once or twice in the form of a suppressed tigerish jealousy of any woman in the house the maids included to whom the count speaks or on whom he looks with anything approaching to special interest or attention except in this one particular she is always morning noon and night indoors and out fair weather or foul as cold as a statue and as impenetrable as the stone out of which it is cut for the common purposes of society the extraordinary change thus produced in her is beyond all doubt a change for the better seeing that it has transformed her into a civil silent unobtrusive woman who is never in the way how far she is really reformed or deteriorated in her secret self is another question i have once or twice seen sudden changes of expression on her pinched lips and heard sudden inflections of tone in her calm voice which have led me to suspect that her present state of suppression may have sealed up something dangerous in her nature which used to evaporate harmlessly in the freedom of her former life it is quite possible that i may be altogether wrong in this idea my own impression however is that i am right time will show and the magician who has wrought this wonderful transformation the foreign husband who has tamed this once wayward Englishwoman till her own relations hardly know her again, the Count himself? What of the Count? This in two words. He looks like a man who could tame anything. If he had married a tigress instead of a woman, he would have tamed the tigress if he had married me i should have made his cigarettes as his wife does i should have held my tongue when he looked at me as she holds hers i am almost afraid to confess it even to these secret pages 
the man has interested me, has attracted me, has forced me to like him. In two short days he has made his way straight into my favourable estimation, and how he has worked the miracle is more than I can tell. It absolutely startles me, now he is in my mind, to find how plainly I see him, how much more plainly than I see Sir Percival, or Mr. Fairley, or Walter Hartwright, or any other absent person of whom I think, with the one exception of Laura herself. I can hear his voice, as if he was speaking at this moment. I know what his conversation was yesterday, as well as if I was hearing it now. How am I to describe him? There are peculiarities in his personal appearance, his habits, and his amusements, which I should blame in the boldest terms, or ridicule in the most merciless manner, if I had seen them in another man. What is it that makes me unable to blame them, or to ridicule them, in him? For example, he is immensely fat. Before this time I have always especially disliked corpulent humanity. I have always maintained that the popular notion of connecting excessive grossness of size and excessive good humour as inseparable allies was equivalent to declaring either that no people but amiable people ever get fat, or that the accidental addition of so many pounds of flesh has a directly favourable influence over the disposition of the person on whose body they accumulate. I have invariably combated both these absurd assertions by quoting examples of fat people who were as mean, vicious, and cruel as the leanest and the worst of their neighbours. I have asked whether Henry the Eighth was an amiable character whether Pope Alexander the Sixth was a good man, whether Mr. Murderer and Mrs. Murderess Manning were not both unusually stout people, whether hired nurses, proverbially as cruel a set of women as are to be found in all England, were not, for the most part, also as fat a set of women as are to be found in all England, and so on, through dozens of other examples, modern and ancient, native and foreign, high and low. Holding these strong opinions on the subject with might and main, as I do at this moment here, nevertheless, is Count Fosco, as fat as Henry the Eighth himself, established in my favour at one day's notice, without let or hindrance, from his own odious corpulence. Marvellous indeed. Is it his face that has recommended him? It may be his face. He is a most remarkable likeness on a large scale of the great Napoleon. His features have Napoleon's magnificent regularity. His expression recalls the grandly calm, immovable power 
of the great soldier's face. This striking resemblance certainly impressed me to begin with, but there is something in him besides the resemblance which has impressed me more. I think the influence I am now trying to find is in his eyes. They are the most unfathomable grey eyes I ever saw, and they have at times a cold, clear, beautiful, irresistible glitter in them, which forces me to look at him, and yet causes me sensations, when I do look, which I would rather not feel. Other parts of his face and head have their strange peculiarities. His complexion, for instance, has a singular sallow fairness, so much at variance with the dark brown colour of his hair, that I suspect the hair of being a wig, and his face, closely shaven all over, is smoother and freer from all marks and wrinkles than mine, though, according to Sir Percival's account of him, he is close on sixty years of age. But these are not the prominent personal characteristics which distinguish him, to my mind, from all the other men I have ever seen. The marked peculiarity which singles him out from the rank and file of humanity lies entirely, so far as I can tell at present, in the extraordinary expression and extraordinary power of his eyes. His manner and his command of our language may also have assisted him in some degree to establish himself in my good opinion. He has that quiet deference, that look of pleased, attentive interest in listening to a woman, and that secret gentleness in his voice in speaking to a woman, which, say what we may, we can none of us resist. Here, too, his unusual command of the English language necessarily helps him. I had often heard of the extraordinary aptitude which many Italians show in mastering our strong, hard northern speech, but until I saw Count Fosco I had never supposed it possible that any foreigner could have spoken English as he speaks it. There are times when it is almost impossible to detect by his accent that he is not a countryman of our own, and, as for fluency, there are very few born Englishmen who can talk with as few stoppages and repetitions as the Count. He may construct his sentences, more or less in the foreign way, but I have never yet heard him use a wrong expression or hesitate for a moment in his choice of a word. All the smallest characteristics of this strange man have something strikingly original and perplexingly contradictory in them. Fat as he is and old as he is, his movements are astonishingly light and easy. He is as noiseless in a room as any of us women, and more than that, with all his look of unmistakable mental firmness and power, he is as nervously sensitive as the weakest of us. He starts at chance noises as inveterately as Laura herself, 
He winced and shuddered yesterday, when Sir Percival beat one of the spaniels, so that I felt ashamed of my own want of tenderness and sensibility by comparison with the Count. The relation of this last incident reminds me of one of his most curious peculiarities, which I have not yet mentioned. His extraordinary fondness for pet animals. Some of these he has left on the continent, but he has brought with him to this house a cockatoo, two canary birds, and a whole family of white mice. He attends to all the necessities of these strange favourites himself, and he has taught the creatures to be surprisingly fond of him and familiar with him. The cockatoo, a most vicious and treacherous bird towards everyone else, absolutely seems to love him. When he lets it out of its cage, it hops on to his knee, and claws its way up his great big body, and rubs its top-knot against his sallow double chin, in the most caressing manner imaginable. He has only to set the doors of the canaries' cages open, and to call them, and the pretty little cleverly trained creatures perch fearlessly on his hand, mount his fat outstretched fingers one by one, when he tells them to go upstairs, and sing together, as if they would burst their throats with delight when they get to the top finger. His white mice live in a little pagoda of gaily painted wirework, designed and made by himself. They are almost as tame as the canaries, and they are perpetually let out like the canaries. They crawl all over him, popping in and out of his waistcoat, and sitting in couples, white as snow, on his capacious shoulders. He seems to be even fonder of his mice than of his other pets, smiles at them and kisses them, and calls them by all sorts of endearing names. If it be possible to suppose an Englishman with any taste for such childish interests and amusements as these, that Englishman would certainly feel rather ashamed of them, and would be anxious to apologise for them in the company of grown-up people. But the Count, apparently, sees nothing ridiculous in the amazing contrast between his colossal self and his frail little pet. He would blandly kiss his white mice, and twitter to his canary birds, amid an assembly of English fox-hunters, and would only pity them as barbarians, when they were all laughing their loudest at him. It seems hardly credible, while I am writing it down, but it is certainly true, that this same man, who has all the fondness of an old maid for his cockatoo, and all the small dexterities of an organ-boy in managing his white mice, can talk, when anything happens to rouse him, with a daring independence of thought, a knowledge of books in every language, and an experience of society 
in half the capitals of Europe, which would make him the prominent personage of any assembly in the civilized world. This trainer of canary birds, this architect of a pagoda for white mice, is, as Sir Percival himself has told me, one of the first experimental chemists living, and has discovered, among other wonderful inventions, a means of petrifying the body after death, so as to preserve it as hard as marble to the end of time. This fat, indolent, elderly man, whose nerves are so finely strung that he starts at chance noises and winces when he sees a house-spaniel get a whipping, went into the stable-yard on the morning after his arrival, and put his hand on the head of a chained bloodhound, a beast so savage that the very groom who feeds him keeps out of his reach. His wife and I were present, and I shall not forget the scene that followed, short as it was. "'Mind that dog, sir,' said the groom. "'He flies at everybody.' "'He does that, my friend,' replied the Count quietly, "'because everybody is afraid of him. "'Let us see if he flies at me.' And he laid his plump yellow-white fingers, on which the canary-birds had been perching ten minutes before, upon the formidable brute's head, and looked him straight in the eyes. "'You big dogs are all cowards,' he said, addressing the animal contemptuously, with his face and the dogs within an inch of each other. "'You would kill a poor cat, you infernal coward. "'You would fly at a starving beggar, you infernal coward. "'Anything that you can surprise unawares, anything that is afraid of your big body and your wicked white teeth and your slobbering bloodthirsty mouth is the thing you like to fly at you could throttle me at this moment you mean miserable bully and you don't so much as look me in the face because i'm not afraid of you will you think better of it and try your teeth in my fat neck not you he turned away laughing at the astonishment of the men in the yard and the dog crept back meekly to his kennel ah my nice waistcoat he said pathetically i am sorry i came here some of that brute slobber has got on my pretty clean waistcoat those words express another of his incomprehensible oddities he is as fond of fine clothes as the veriest fool in existence, and has appeared in four magnificent waistcoats already, all of light garish colours, and all immensely large even for him, in the two days of his residence at Blackwater Park. His tact and cleverness in small things are quite as noticeable as the singular inconsistencies in his character and the childish triviality of his ordinary tastes and pursuits. I can see already that he means to live on excellent terms with all of us during the period of his sojourn in this place. 
he has evidently discovered that Laura secretly dislikes him. She confessed as much to me when I pressed her on the subject. But he has also found out that she is extravagantly fond of flowers. Whenever she wants a nosegay, he has got one to give her, gathered and arranged by himself, and, greatly to my amusement, he is always cunningly provided with a duplicate, composed of exactly the same flowers, grouped in exactly the same way, to appease his icily jealous wife, before she can so much as think herself aggrieved. His management of the countess in public is a sight to see. He bows to her. He habitually addresses her as my angel. He carries his canaries to pay her little visits on his fingers and to sing to her. He kisses her hand when she gives him his cigarettes. He presents her with sugar plums in return, which he puts into her mouth playfully from a box in his pocket. The rod of iron with which he rules her never appears in company. It is a private rod, and is always kept upstairs. His method of recommending himself to me is entirely different. He flatters my vanity by talking to me as seriously and sensibly as if I was a man. Yes, I can find him out when I am away from him. I know he flatters my vanity when I think of him up here in my own room. And yet, when I go downstairs and get into his company again, he will blind me again, and I shall be flattered again, just as if I had never found him out at all. He can manage me as he manages his wife and Laura, as he managed the bloodhound in the stable-yard, as he manages Sir Percival himself every hour in the day. My good Percival, how I like your rough English humour! My good Percival, how I enjoy your solid English sense! He puts the rudest remarks a Percival can make on his effeminate tastes and amusements, quietly away from him in that manner, always calling the baronet by his Christian name, smiling at him with the calmest superiority, patting him on the shoulder, and bearing with him benignantly, as a good-humoured father bears with a wayward son. The interest which I really cannot help feeling in this strangely original man has led me to question Sir Percival about his past life. Sir Percival either knows little, or will tell me little about it. He and the Count first met many years ago at Rome, under the dangerous circumstances to which I have alluded elsewhere. Since that time they have been perpetually together in London, in Paris, and in Vienna, but never in Italy again, the Count having, oddly enough, not crossed the frontiers of his native country for years past. Perhaps he has been made the victim of some political persecution. At all events, he seems to be patriotically anxious not to lose sight of any of his own countrymen who may happen to be in England. On the evening of his arrival, he asked how far we were from the nearest town, and whether we knew of any Italian gentlemen who might happen to be settled there. 
he is certainly in correspondence with people on the continent for his letters have all sorts of odd stamps on them and i saw one for him this morning waiting in his place at the breakfast-table with a huge official-looking seal on it perhaps he is in correspondence with his government and yet that is hardly to be reconciled either with my other idea that he may be a political exile how much i seem to have written about count fosco and what does it all amount to as poor dear mr gilmore would ask in his impenetrable business-like way i can only repeat that i do assuredly feel even on this short acquaintance a strange half-willing half-unwilling liking for the count he seems to have established over me the same sort of ascendancy which he has evidently gained over sir percival free and even rude as he may occasionally be in his manner towards his fat friend sir percival is nevertheless afraid as i can plainly see of giving any serious offence to the count i wonder whether i am afraid too i certainly never saw a man in all my experience whom i should be so sorry to have for an enemy is this because i like him or because i am afraid of him Kisa, as count fosco might say in his own language who knows june sixteenth something to chronicle to-day besides my own ideas and impressions a visitor has arrived quite unknown to laura and to me and apparently quite unexpected by sir percival we were all at lunch in the room with the new french windows that open into the veranda and the count who devours pastry as i have never yet seen it devoured by any human beings but girls at boarding-schools had just amused us by asking gravely for his fourth tart when the servant entered to announce the visitor mr merriman has just come sir percival and wishes to see you immediately sir percival started and looked at the man with an expression of angry alarm mr merriman he repeated as if he thought his own ears must have deceived him yes sir percival and mr merriman from london where is he in the library sir percival he left the table the instant the answer was given and hurried out of the room without saying a word to any of us who is mr merriman asked laura appealing to me i have not the least idea was all i could say in reply the count had finished his fourth tart and had gone to a side-table to look after his vicious cockatoo he turned round to us with the bird perched on his shoulder mr merriman is a possible solicitor he said quietly sir percival's solicitor it was a perfectly straightforward answer to laura's question and yet under the circumstances it was not satisfactory if mr merriman had been specially sent for by his client there would have been nothing very wonderful in his leaving town to obey the summons but when a lawyer travels from london to hampshire 
without being sent for, and when his arrival at a gentleman's house seriously startles the gentleman himself, it may be safely taken for granted that the legal visitor is the bearer of some very important and very unexpected news, news which may be either very good or very bad, but which cannot in either case be of the common everyday kind. Laura and I sat silent at the table for a quarter of an hour or more, wondering uneasily what had happened, and waiting for the chance of Sir Percival's speedy return. There were no signs of his return, and we rose to leave the room. The Count, attentive as usual, advanced from the corner in which he had been feeding his cockatoo, with the bird still perched on his shoulder, and opened the door for us. Laura and Madame Fosco went out first. Just as I was on the point of following them, he made a sign with his hand and spoke to me before I passed him, in the oddest manner. Yes, he said quietly, answering the unexpressed idea at that moment in my mind, as if I had plainly confided it to him in so many words. Yes, Miss Halkin, something has happened. I was on the point of answering, I never said so, but the vicious cockatoo ruffled his clipped wings and gave a screech that set all my nerves on edge in an instant and made me only too glad to get out of the room. I joined Laura at the foot of the stairs. The thought in her mind was the same as the thought in mine which Count Bosco had surprised, and when she spoke her words were almost the echo of his. She too said to me secretly, that she was afraid something had happened. End of chapter 12「about two hours after Sir Percival rose from the luncheon-table to receive his solicitor, Mr. Merriman, in the library, I left my room alone to take a walk in the plantations. Just as I was at the end of the landing, the library door opened, and the two gentlemen came out. Thinking it best not to disturb them by appearing on the stairs, I resolved to defer going down till they had crossed the hall. Although they spoke to each other in guarded tones, their words were pronounced with sufficient distinctness of utterance to reach my ears. "'Make your mind easy, Sir Percival,' I heard the lawyer say. "'It all rests with Lady Glyde.' I had turned to go back to my own room for a minute or two, but the sound of Laura's name on the lips of a stranger, stopped me instantly. 
I dare say it was very wrong and very discreditable to listen, but where is the woman in the whole range of our sex who can regulate her actions by the abstract principles of honour when those principles point one way and when her affections and the interests which grow out of them point the other? I listened and under similar circumstances I would listen again, yes, with my ear at the keyhole, if I could not possibly manage it in any other way. You quite understand, Sir Percival, the lawyer went on. Lady Glyde is to sign her name in the presence of a witness, or of two witnesses, if you wish to be particularly careful, and is then to put her finger on the seal and say, I deliver this as my act and deed. If that is done in a week's time, the arrangement will be perfectly successful, and the anxiety will be all over. If not, what do you mean by if not? asked Sir Percival angrily. If the thing must be done, it shall be done. I promise you that, Merriman. Just so, Sir Percival, just so. But there are two alternatives in all transactions, and we lawyers like to look both of them in the face boldly. If, through any extraordinary circumstance, the arrangement should not be made, I think I may be able to get the parties to accept bills at three months. But how the money is to be raised when the bills fall due? Damn the bills! The money is only to be got in one way, and in that way, I tell you again, it shall be got. Take a glass of wine, Merriman, before you go. Much obliged, Sir Percival. I have not a moment to lose if I am to catch the up-train. You will let me know as soon as the arrangement is complete. And you will not forget the caution I recommended? Of course I won't. There's the dog-cart at the door for you. My groom will get you to the station in no time. Benjamin, drive like mad. Jump in. If Mr. Merriman misses the train, you lose your place. Hold fast, Merriman, and if you are upset, Trust to the devil to save his own. With that parting benediction, the baronet turned away and walked back to the library. I had not heard much, but the little that had reached my ears was enough to make me feel uneasy. The something that had happened was but too plainly a serious money embarrassment and Sir Percival's relief from it depended upon Laura. The prospect of seeing her involved in her husband's secret difficulties filled me with dismay, exaggerated, no doubt, by my ignorance of business and my subtle distrust of Sir Percival. Instead of going out, as I proposed, I went back immediately to Laura's room to tell her what I had heard. She received my bad news so composedly as to surprise me. She evidently knows more of her husband's character and her husband's embarrassments than I have suspected up to this time. 
I feared as much, she said, when I heard of that strange gentleman who called and declined to leave his name. Who do you think the gentleman was, then? I asked. Some person who has heavy claims on Sir Percival, she answered, and who has been the cause of Mr. Merriman's visit here today. Do you know anything about those claims? No, I know no particulars. You will sign nothing, Laura, without first looking at it. Certainly not, Marion. Whatever I can harmlessly and honestly do to help him, I will do, for the sake of making your life and mine, love, as easy and as happy as possible. But I will do nothing ignorantly, which we might one day have reason to feel ashamed of. Let us say no more about it now. You have got your hat on. Suppose we go and dream away the afternoon in the grounds. On leaving the house, we directed our steps to the nearest shade. As we passed an open space among the trees in front of the house, there was Count Fosco, slowly walking backwards and forwards on the grass, sunning himself in the full blaze of the hot June afternoon. He had a broad straw hat on, with a violet-coloured ribbon round it, a blue blouse with profuse white fancy-work over the bosom, covered his prodigious body, and was girt about the place where his waist might once have been, with a broad scarlet leather belt. Nankeen trousers, displaying more white fancy-work over the ankles, and purple Morocco slippers, adorned his lower extremities. He was singing Figaro's famous song in the Barber of Seville, with that crisply fluent vocalization which is never heard from any other than an Italian throat, accompanying himself on the concertina, which he played with ecstatic throwings up of his arms and graceful twistings and turnings of his head, like a fat Saint Cecilia masquerading in male attire. Figaro quack, Figaro la, Figaro soup, Figaro jou, sang the count, jauntily tossing up the concertina at arm's length, and bowing to us on one side of the instrument, with the airy grace and elegance of Figaro himself, at twenty years of age. Take my word for it, Laura, that man knows something of Sir Percival's embarrassments, I said, as we returned the Count's salutation from a safe distance. What makes you think that? she asked. How should he have known otherwise that Mr. Merriman was Sir Percival's solicitor, I rejoined. Besides, when I followed you out of the luncheon-room, he told me, without a single word of inquiry on my part, that something had happened. Depend upon it, he knows more than we do. Don't ask him any questions if he does. Don't take him into our confidence. You seem to dislike him, Laura, in a very determined manner. What has he said or done to justify you? Nothing, Marian, 
On the contrary, he was all kindness and attention on our journey home, and he several times checked Sir Percival's outbreaks of temper in the most considerate manner towards me. Perhaps I dislike him because he has so much more power over my husband than I have. Perhaps it hurts my pride to be under any obligations to his interference. All I know is that I do dislike him. The rest of the day and evening passed quietly enough. The Count and I played at chess. For the first two games he politely allowed me to conquer him, and then, when he saw that I had found him out, begged my pardon, and at the third game checkmated me in ten minutes. Sir Percival never once referred all through the evening to the lawyer's visit but either that event or something else had produced a singular alteration for the better in him. He was as polite and agreeable to all of us as he used to be in the days of his probation at Limeridge, and he was so amazingly attentive and kind to his wife that even icy Madame Fosco was roused into looking at him with a grave surprise. "'What does this mean?' I think I can guess. I am afraid Laura can guess. And I am sure Count Fosco knows. I caught Sir Percival looking at him for approval more than once in the course of the evening. June 17th. A day of events. I most fervently hope I may not have to add a day of disasters as well. Sir Percival was as silent at breakfast as he had been the evening before on the subject of the mysterious arrangement, as the lawyer calls it, which is hanging over our heads. An hour afterwards, however, he suddenly entered the morning-room where his wife and I were waiting with our hats on for Madame Fosco to join us, and inquired for the Count. "'We expect to see him here directly,' I said. "'The fact is,' Sir Percival went on, walking nervously about the room, "'I want Fosco and his wife in the library for a mere business formality, "'and I want you there, Laura, for a minute, too.' He stopped, and appeared to notice for the first time that we were in our walking costume. "'Have you just come in?' he asked. "'Or were you just going out? "'We were all thinking of going to the lake this morning,' said Laura. "'But if you have any other arrangement to propose—' "'No, no,' he answered hastily. "'My arrangement can wait. "'After lunch will do as well for it as after breakfast. "'All going to the lake, eh? "'A good idea. "'Let's have an idle morning.' I'll be one of the party. There was no mistaking his manner, even if it had been possible to mistake the uncharacteristic readiness which his words expressed to submit his own plans and projects to the convenience of others. He was evidently relieved at finding any excuse for delaying the business formality in the library to which his own words had referred. My heart sank within me as I drew the inevitable inference. The Count and his wife 
joined us at that moment. The lady had her husband's embroidered tobacco pouch, and her store of paper in her hand, for the manufacture of the eternal cigarettes. The gentleman, dressed as usual, in his blouse and straw hat, carried the gay little pagoda cage, with his darling white mice in it, and smiled on them and on us, with a bland amiability which it was impossible to resist. Oh, with your kind permission, said the Count, I will take my small family here, my poor little harmless pretty mousies, out for an airing along with us. There are dogs about the house, and shall I leave my forlorn white children at the mercies of the dogs? Ah, oh, never! He chirruped paternally, at his small white children through the bars of the pagoda, and we all left the house for the lake. In the plantation Sir Percival strayed away from us. It seems to be part of his restless disposition, always to separate himself from his companions on these occasions, and always to occupy himself when he is alone in cutting new walking-sticks for his own use. The mere act of cutting and lopping at hazard appears to please him. He has filled the house with walking-sticks of his own making, not one of which he ever takes up for a second time. When they have been once used, his interest in them is all exhausted, and he thinks of nothing but going on and making more. At the old boat-house he joined us again, I will put down the conversation that ensued, when we were all settled in our places, exactly as it passed. It is an important conversation, so far as I am concerned, for it has seriously disposed me to distrust the influence which Count Fosco has exercised over my thoughts and feelings, and to resist it for the future as resolutely as I can. The boat-house was large enough to hold us all, but Sir Percival remained outside, trimming the last new stick with his pocket-axe. We three women found plenty of room on the large seat. Laura took her work, and Madame Fosco began her cigarettes. I, as usual, had nothing to do. My hands always were, and always will be, as awkward as a man's. The Count good-humouredly took a stool many sizes too small for him, and balanced himself on it with his back against the side of the shed, which creaked and groaned under his weight. He put the pagoda cage on his lap, and let out the mice to crawl over him as usual. They are pretty, innocent-looking little creatures, but the sight of them creeping about a man's body is for some reason not pleasant to me. It excites a strange, responsive creeping in my own nerves, and suggests hideous ideas of men dying in prison, with the crawling creatures of the dungeon preying on them undisturbed. 
the morning was windy and cloudy, and the rapid alternations of shadow and sunlight over the waste of the lake made the view look doubly wild, weird, and gloomy. "'Some people call that picturesque,' said Sir Percival, pointing over the wide prospect with his half-finished walking-stick. "'I call it a blot on a gentleman's property.' In my great-grandfather's time the lake flowed to this place. Look at it now. It is not four feet deep anywhere, and it is all puddles and pools. I wish I could afford to drain it and plant it all over. My bailiff, a superstitious idiot, says he is quite sure the lake has a curse on it, like the Dead Sea. <laughs> what do you think, Fosco? It looks just the place for a murder, doesn't it? "'My good Percival,' remonstrated the Count, "'what is your solid English sense thinking of? "'The water is too shallow to hide the body, "'and there is sand everywhere to print off the murderer's footsteps. "'It is, upon the whole, the very worst place for a murder "'that I ever set my eyes on.' "'Humbug!' said Sir Percival. "'cutting away fiercely at his stick. "'You know what I mean. "'The dreary scenery, the lonely situation. "'If you choose to understand me, you can. "'If you don't choose, "'I'm not going to trouble myself to explain my meaning.' "'And why not?' asked the Count. "'When your meaning can be explained by anybody in two words. "'If a fool was going to commit a murder, your lake is the first place he would choose for it. If a wise man was going to commit a murder, your lake is the last place he would choose for it. Is that your meaning? If it is, there is your explanation for you ready-made. Take it possible with your good Fosco's blessing. Laura looked at the Count, with her dislike for him appearing a little too plainly in her face. He was so busy with his mice that he did not notice her. "'I am sorry to hear the lake view connected with anything so horrible as the idea of murder,' she said. "'And if Count Fosco must divide murderers into classes,' I think he has been very unfortunate in his choice of expressions. To describe them as fools only seems like treating them with an indulgence to which they have no claim. And to describe them as wise men sounds to me like a downright contradiction in terms. I have always heard that truly wise men are truly good men, and have a horror of crime. My dear lady, said the Count. These are admirable sentiments, and I have seen them stated at the tops of copy-books. He lifted one of the white mice in the palm of his hand, and spoke to it in his whimsical way. My pretty little smooth white rascal, he said, here is a moral lesson for you, a truly wise mouse is a truly good mouth. 
mention that if you please to your companions and never gnaw at the bars of your cage again as long as you live it is easy to turn everything into ridicule said laura resolutely but you will not find it quite so easy count fosco to give me an instance of a wise man who has been a great criminal the count shrugged his huge shoulders and smiled on laura in the friendliest manner most true he said the fool's crime is the crime that is found out and the wise man's crime is the crime that is not found out if i could give you an instance it would not be the instance of a wise man dear lady clyde your sound english common sense has been too much for me it is checkmate for me this time miss harkham huh? stand to your guns laura sneered sir percival who had been listening in his place at the door tell him next that crimes cause their own detection there's another bit of copy-book morality for you fosco crimes cause their own detection what infernal humbug i believe it to be true said laura quietly sir percival burst out laughing so violently so outrageously that he quite startled us all the count more than any of us i believe it too i said coming to laura's rescue sir percival who had been unaccountably amused at his wife's remark was just as unaccountably irritated by mine he struck the new stick savagely on the sand and walked away from us poor dear percival cried count fosco looking after him gaily he is the victim of english spleen but my dear miss harkham my dear lady clyde do you really believe that crimes cause their own detection and you my angel he continued turning to his wife who had not uttered a word yet do you think so too i wait to be instructed replied the countess in tones of freezing reproof intended for laura and me before i venture on giving my opinion in the presence of well-informed men do you indeed i said i remember the time countess when you advocated the rights of women and freedom of female opinion was one of them what is your view of the subject count asked madame fosco calmly proceeding with her cigarettes and not taking the least notice of me the count stroked one of his white mice reflectively with his chubby little finger before he answered it is truly wonderful he said how easily society can console itself for the worst of its shortcomings with a little bit of claptrap the machinery it has set up for the detection of crime is miserably ineffective and yet only invent a moral epigram 
saying that it works well, and you blind everybody to its blunders from that moment. Crimes cause their own detection, do they? And murder will out. Another moral epigram, will it? Ask coroners who sit at inquests in large towns, if that is true, Lady Glyde. Ask secretaries of life assurance companies, if that is true, Miss Halcombe. Read your own public journals. In the few cases that get into the newspapers, are there not instances of slain bodies found, and no murderers ever discovered? Multiply the cases that are reported by the cases that are not reported, and the bodies that are found by the bodies that are not found. And what conclusion do you come to, this, that there are foolish criminals who are discovered, and wise criminals who escape? The hiding of a crime, or the detection of a crime, what is it? A trial of skill between the police on one side, and the individual on the other. When the criminal is a brutal, ignorant fool, the police in nine cases out of ten win. When the criminal is a resolute, educated, highly intelligent man, the police in nine cases out of ten lose. If the police win, you generally hear all about it. If the police lose, you generally hear nothing. And on this tottering foundation you build up your comfortable moral maxim that crime causes its own detection. Yes, all the crime you know of. And what of the rest? Devilish true, and very well put, cried a voice at the entrance of the boathouse. Sir Percival had recovered his equanimity, and had come back while we were listening to the Count. "'Some of it may be true,' I said, "'and all of it may be very well put. "'But I don't see why Count Fosco should celebrate the victory of the criminal over society "'with so much exultation, or why you, Sir Percival, should applaud him so loudly for doing it.' "'Do you hear that, Fosco?' asked Sir Percival. Take my advice, and make your peace with your audience. Tell them virtue's a fine thing. They like that, I can promise you. The Count laughed inwardly and silently, and two of the white mice in his waistcoat, alarmed by the internal convulsion going on beneath them, darted out in a violent hurry, and scrambled into their cage again. "'The ladies, my good Percival, shall tell me about virtue,' he said. "'They are better authorities than I am, for they know what virtue is, and I don't.' "'You hear him?' said Sir Percival. "'Isn't it awful?' "'It is true,' said the Count quietly. "'I am a citizen of the world, and I have met in my time with so many different sorts of virtue.' that I am puzzled in my old age to say which is the right sort and which is the wrong. Here in England 
there is one virtue. And there, in China, there is another virtue. And John Englishman says my virtue is the genuine virtue. And John Chinaman says my virtue is the genuine virtue. And I say yes to one or no to the other and am just as much bewildered about it in the case of john with the top boots as i am in the case of john with the pigtail <laughs> oh nice little mousy come kiss me what is your own private notion of a virtuous man may pit pit pretty a man who keeps you warm and gives you plenty to eat and a good notion too for it is intelligible at the least stay a minute count i interposed accepting your illustration surely we have one unquestionable virtue in england which is wanting in china the chinese authorities kill thousands of innocent people on the most frivolous pretexts we in england are free from all guilt of that kind we commit no such dreadful crime we abhor reckless bloodshed with all our hearts quite right marian said laura well thought of and well expressed pray allow the count to proceed said madame fosco with stern civility you will find young ladies that he never speaks without having excellent reasons for all that he says thank you my angel replied the count have a bonbon he took out of his pocket a pretty little inlaid box and placed it open on the table chocolat a la vanille cried the impenetrable man cheerfully rattling the sweetmeats in the box and bowing all round offered by fosco as an act of homage to the charming society be good enough to go on count said his wife with a spiteful reference to myself oblige me by answering miss halcombe miss halcombe is unanswerable replied the polite italian that is to say so far as she goes yes i agree with her john bull does abhor the crimes of john chinaman he is the quickest old gentleman at finding out faults that are his neighbours and the slowest old gentleman at finding out the faults that are his own who exists on the face of creation is he so very much better in this way than the people whom he condemns in their way uh, english society miss harcombe is as often the accomplice as it is the enemy of crime yes yes crime is in this country what crime is in other countries a good friend to a man and to those about him as often as it is an enemy 
a great rascal provides for his wife and family. The worse he is, the more he makes them the objects for your sympathy. He often provides also for himself. A profligate spendthrift, who is always borrowing money, will get more from his friends than the rigidly honest man, who only borrows of them once, under pressure of the direst want. In the one case, the friends will not be at all surprised, and they will give. In the other case, they will be very much surprised, and they will hesitate. Is the prison that Mr. Scoundrel lives in at the end of his career a more uncomfortable place than the workhouse that Mr. Honesty lives in at the end of his career? When John Howard Philanthropist wants to relieve misery, he goes to find it in prisons where crime is wretched, not in huts and hovels where virtue is wretched too. Who is the English poet who has won the most universal sympathy, who makes the easiest of all subjects for pathetic writing and pathetic painting, that nice young person who began life with a forgery and ended it by a suicide, your dear, romantic, interesting Chatterton, which gets on best, do you think, of two poor starving dressmakers, the woman who resists temptation and is honest, or the woman who falls under temptation and steals? You all know that the stealing is the making of that second woman's fortune. It advertises her from length to breadth of good-humoured charitable England, and she is relieved as the breaker of a commandment, when she would have been left to starve as the keeper of it. Come here, my jolly little mouse. Hey, Porosto, pass! I transform you for the time being into a respectable lady. Stop there in the palm of my great big hand, my dear, and listen. You marry the poor man whom you love, Mouse, and one half your friends pity, and the other half blame you. And now, on the contrary, you sell yourself for gold to a man you don't care for, and all your friends rejoice over you, and a minister of public worship sanctions the base horror of the vilest of all human bargains, and smiles and smirks afterwards at your table, if you are polite enough to ask him to breakfast. Hey, presto, pass. Be a mouse again, and squeak. If you continue to be a lady much longer, I shall have you telling me that society abhors crime, and then, mouse, I shall doubt if your own eyes and ears are really of any use to you. Ah! I am a bad man, Lady Glyde, am I not? I say what other people only think, and when all the rest of the world is in a conspiracy to accept the mask for the true face, mine is the rash hand that tears off the plump pasteboard and shows the bare bones beneath. 
I will get up on my big elephant's legs before I do myself any more harm in your amiable estimations. I will get up and take a little airy walk of my own. Dear ladies, as your excellent Sheridan said, I go and leave my character behind me. He got up, put the cage on the table, and paused for a moment to count the mice in it. One, two, three, four. Ah! He cried with a look of horror. Where in the name of heaven is the fifth, the youngest, the whitest, the most amiable of all my Benjamin of mites? Neither Laura nor I were in any favourable disposition to be amused. The Count's glib cynicism had revealed a new aspect of his nature from which we both recoiled, but it was impossible to resist the comical distress of so very large a man at the loss of so very small a mouse. We laughed in spite of ourselves, and when Madame Fosca rose to set the example of leaving the boathouse empty so that her husband might search it to its remotest corners, we rose also to follow her out. Before we had taken three steps, the Count's quick eye discovered the lost mouse under the seat that we had been occupying. He pulled aside the bench, took the little animal up in his hand, and then suddenly stopped on his knees, looking intently at a particular place on the ground just beneath him. When he rose to his feet again, his hand shook so that he could hardly put the mouse back in the cage, and his face was of a faint, livid yellow hue all over. "'Percival,' he said in a whisper, "'Percival, come here!' Sir Percival had paid no attention to any of us for the last ten minutes. He had been entirely absorbed in writing figures on the sand, and then rubbing them out again with the point of his stick. "'What's the matter now?' he asked, lounging carelessly into the boathouse. "'Do you see nothing there?' said the Count, catching him nervously by the collar with one hand, and pointing with the other to the place near which he had found the mast. "'I see plenty of dry sand,' answered Sir Percival, "'and a spot of dirt in the middle of it.' "'Not dirt,' whispered the Count, fastening the other hand suddenly on Sir Percival's collar and shaking it in his agitation. Blood! Laura was near enough to hear the last word, softly as he whispered it. She turned to me with a look of terror. Nonsense, my dear, I said. There is no need to be alarmed. It is only the blood of a poor little stray dog. Everybody was astonished, and everybody's eyes were fixed on me inquiringly. How do you know that? asked Sir Percival, speaking first. "'I found the dog here dying, on the day when you all returned from abroad,' I replied. "'The poor creature had strayed into the plantation, and had been shot by your keeper.' "'Whose dog was it?' inquired Sir Percival. "'Not one of mine.' "'Did you try to save the poor thing?' asked Laura earnestly. "'Surely you tried to save it, Marion?' "'Yes,' I said. The housekeeper and I both did our best, 
but the dog was mortally wounded, and he died under our hands. "'Whose dog was it?' persisted Sir Percival, repeating his question a little irritably. "'One of mine?' "'No, not one of yours.' "'Whose, then? Did the housekeeper know?' The housekeeper's report of Mrs. Catherick's desire to conceal her visit to Blackwater Park from Sir Percival's knowledge recurred to my memory the moment he put that last question, and I half doubted the discretion of answering it. But in my anxiety to quiet the general alarm, I had thoughtlessly advanced too far to draw back, except at the risk of exciting suspicion, which might only make matters worse. There was nothing for it but to answer at once, without reference to results. "'Yes,' I said, "'the housekeeper knew. She told me it was Mrs. Catherick's dog.' Sir Percival had hitherto remained at the inner end of the boat-house with Count Fosco, while I spoke to him from the door. But the instant Mrs. Catherick's name passed my lips, he pushed by the Count roughly and placed himself face to face with me under the open daylight. "'How came the housekeeper to know it was Mrs. Catherick's dog?' he asked, fixing his eyes on mine, with a frowning interest and attention which half-angered, half-startled me. "'She knew it,' I said quietly, "'because Mrs. Catherick brought the dog with her.' "'Brought it with her?' "'Where did she bring it with her?' "'To the house.' "'What the devil did Mrs. Catherick want at this house?' The manner in which he put the question was even more offensive than the language in which he expressed it. I marked my sense of his want of common politeness by silently turning away from him. Just as I moved, the Count's persuasive hand was laid on his shoulder, and the Count's mellifluous voice interposed to quiet him. "'My dear person, gently, gently.' Sir Percival looked round in his angriest manner. The Count only smiled, and repeated the soothing application. "'Gently, my good friend, gently.' Sir Percival hesitated, followed me a few steps, and, to my great surprise, offered me an apology. "'I beg your pardon, Miss Halcombe,' he said. "'I have been out of order lately, and I am afraid I am a little irritable. But I should like to know what Mrs. Catherick could possibly want here. When did she come? Was the housekeeper the only person who saw it? The only person, I answered, so far as I know. The Count interposed again. In that case, why not question the housekeeper, he said. Why not go, Percival, to the fountainhead of information at once? Quite right, said Sir Percival. Of course the housekeeper is the first person to question. Excessively stupid of me not to see it myself. With those words, he instantly left us to return to the house. The motive of the Count's interference 
which had puzzled me at first, betrayed itself when Sir Percival's back was turned. He had a host of questions to put to me about Mrs. Catherick, and the cause of her visit to Blackwater Park, which he could scarcely have asked in his friend's presence. I made my answers as short as I civilly could, for I had already determined to check the least approach to any exchanging of confidences between Count Fosco and myself. Laura, however, unconsciously helped him to extract all my information by making inquiries herself, which left me no alternative but to reply to her, or to appear in the very unenviable and very false character of a depository of Sir Percival's secrets. The end of it was that, in about ten minutes' time, the Count knew as much as I know of Mrs. Catherick, and of the events which have so strangely connected us with her daughter Anne, from the time when Hartwright met with her to this day. The effect of my information on him was, in one respect, curious enough. Intimately as he knows Sir Percival, and closely as he appears to be associated with Sir Percival's private affairs in general, he is certainly, as far as I am, from knowing anything of the true story of Anne Catherick. The unsolved mystery in connection with this unhappy woman is now rendered doubly suspicious in my eyes by the absolute conviction which I feel that the clue to it has been hidden by Sir Percival from the most intimate friend he has in the world. It was impossible to mistake the eager curiosity of the Count's look and manner while he drank in greedily every word that fell from my lips. There are many kinds of curiosity, I know, but there is no misinterpreting the curiosity of blank surprise. If I ever saw it in my life, I saw it in the Count's face. While the questions and answers were going on, we had all been strolling quietly back through the plantation. As soon as we reached the house, the first object that we saw in front of it was Sir Percival's dog-cart, with the horse put to, and the groom waiting by it in his stable-jacket. If these unexpected appearances were to be trusted, the examination of the housekeeper had produced important results already. "'A fine horse, my friend,' said the Count, addressing the groom with the most engaging familiarity of manner. "'You are going to drive out.' "'I am not going, sir,' replied the man, looking at his stable-jacket, and evidently wondering whether the foreign gentleman took it for his livery. "'My master drives himself.' "'Aha!' said the Count. Does he indeed? I wonder he gives himself the trouble when he has got you to drive for him. Is he going to fatigue that nice, shining, pretty horse by taking him very far to-day? I don't know, sir, answered the man. The horse is a mare, if you please, sir. She's the highest courage thing we've got in the stables. Her name's Brown Molly, sir, and she'll go till she drops. Sir Percival usually takes Isaac of York for the short distances. 
and your shining courageous brown molly for the long logical inference miss halcombe continued the count wheeling round briskly and addressing me sir percival is going a long distance to-day i made no reply i had my own inferences to draw from what i knew through the housekeeper and from what I saw before me, and I did not choose to share them with Count Fosco. When Sir Percival was in Cumberland, I thought to myself, he walked away a long distance on Anne's account, to question the family at Todd's Corner. Now he is in Hampshire, is he going to drive away a long distance on Anne's account again, to question Mrs. Catherick at Wilmingham? We all entered the house, as we crossed the hall, Sir Percival came out from the library to meet us. He looked hurried and pale and anxious, but for all that he was in his most polite mood when he spoke to us. "'I am sorry to say I am obliged to leave you,' he began, a long drive, a matter that I can't very well put up. I shall be back in good time to-morrow, but before I go I should like that little business formality which I spoke of this morning to be settled.' "'Laura, will you come into the library? "'It won't take a minute, a mere formality. "'Countess, may I trouble you also? "'I want you and the Countess, Fosco, "'to be witnesses to a signature, nothing more. "'Come in at once and get it over.' "'He held the library door open until they had passed in, "'followed them, and shut it softly. "'I remained for a moment afterwards, "'standing alone in the hall, with my heart beating fast.' and my mind misgiving me sadly. Then I went on to the staircase, and ascended slowly to my own room. End of chapter 13